quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good morning, everyone. Let's go ahead and get things started with five things to know for this Wednesday, August 16th. There are new developments in Donald Trump, Trump's Georgia indictment overnight. We learn the former president is expected to be booked in the Fulton County Jail when he turns himself in at any point in the next nine days. And in the other election subversion case, we're learning his DMs or direct messages on Twitter were of great interest to the special counsel as new court transcripts are unsealed. New questions this morning about what caused wildfires on Maui that are now blamed for 106 deaths. The Washington Post is reporting a downed power line likely caused that first fire on the island. Here's the video of that moment. And the mother of the U.S. soldier who mysteriously crossed into North Korea last month is asking Kim Jong-un's regime to treat her son humanely. North Korea, meantime, insisting King wanted to leave the U.S. Army on his own accord. The blindside family pushing back on claims that they withheld millions of dollars from ex-NFL star Michael Orr. They say Orr attempted a $15 million shakedown before he filed this petition. CNN This Morning starts right now. All right. Here's where we start new overnight. We now know where Donald Trump will likely surrender in Fulton County, Georgia, with just nine days left to turn himself in. The local sheriff there says the former president is expected to be arrested and booked at the Fulton County Jail on 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in the state. It's not clear, though, when that will happen. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has ordered Trump and his 18 co-defendants to surrender by noon next Friday. One of those alleged co-conspirators, Rudy Giuliani, says he will turn himself in sometime next week. This is he is ramping up his attacks on the district attorney, also slamming her for using RICO racketeering charges, the same kind that he used, really pioneered to prosecute mafia bosses in New York when he was the U.S. attorney back in the 1980s. She's a, a politician uh, and not a lawyer, not an honest, honorable lawyer. This is a ridiculous application the racketeering statute. There's probably no one that knows it better than I do. Uh, this is not meant for election disputes. I mean, I, this is ridiculous what she's doing. Also, I don't know if she realizes it because she seems like a pretty incompetent, sloppy prosecutor. Meanwhile, another co-defendant, Trump's former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, already fighting to move the case from state court to federal court so he can try and get it dismissed. Nick Valencia is live outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Nick, do we have any insight right now in terms of how Trump's arrest is going to go down by next Friday? Well, we wish we had more details, but we're working on getting those, Phil. What we do know, though, is that the Fulton County Sheriff says that he's going to treat the former president like he would anyone else who's been indicted in Fulton County. And that means being processed through the infamous Fulton County Jail, where earlier this year, a man is alleged to have been eaten alive by bedbugs. The news of Trump potentially going to the Fulton County Jail has caused quite the reaction here uh, in Atlanta and beyond, if only for the uh, optics alone. 
Meanwhile, we are seeing some of the defense strategy from some of the defendants here, former uh, chief of staff for former President Trump, Mark Meadows, and his attorneys filing a formal petition to try to get their case removed from state court and moved to federal court, arguing that when someone is charged for actions that they took allegedly while working as a federal official, they should have their criminal proceedings moved to federal court. Here is what he and his lawyers are saying in part of that filing, saying, quote, nothing Mr. Meadows is alleged of in the indictment to have done is criminal, per se, arranging Oval Office meetings, contacting state officials on the president's behalf, visiting a state government building and setting up a phone call for the president. One would expect a chief of staff of the president of the United States to do these sorts of things. Mark Meadows, of course, charged with two counts uh, in the indictment, including racketeering as well as violation of oath of office by a public official. This matter, we understand now, is in the hands of a U.S. district judge here in Georgia. Phil. All right. Nick Valencia live for us outside the courthouse. Thank you. Now to the other investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Newly unsealed court transcripts reveal that the special counsel, Jack Smith, wanted to look into former President Trump's direct messages on Twitter. They were reportedly, there were reportedly many DMs. The transcripts also gave additional hints into what the special counsel was looking for before they indicted Trump in the federal election subversion case. Our senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Poland, joins us now. I remember it was just, you know, a week ago or so, we were wondering, well, why, why would he need this, right? We see the tweets, but this is about the ones we don't see and maybe even about drafts. Yeah, actually, Phil and Poppy, Donald Trump, he doesn't email, he doesn't text, but in this court transcript, in these court proceedings where the special counsel's office went to Twitter and secretly was trying to get access to Donald Trump's Twitter account, it wasn't just those tweets he was posting publicly that they really wanted. They also wanted the direct messages. And this is the first time we have ever heard that Donald Trump's Twitter account would have direct messages, private communications on that service, including ones, Bobby, as you're mentioning, not just that he's sending to people, but ones that would have been deleted. And so this all comes out in a series of hearings in February of this year as a judge is trying to get Twitter to respond to this uh, warrant that the, the Justice Department had for these Twitter pieces of data. And as the judge is looking for that and trying to figure out exactly what Twitter might have so that to make sure that they are complying with what the Justice Department is seeking, that's when this all comes out. And one of the Twitter lawyers even says in court, we were able to determine that there was some volume in that for this account talking about direct messages. There are confidential communications. So this lawyer is asserting in court, yes, indeed, Donald Trump's Twitter account has direct messages. And then the Justice Department says uh, they talk a little bit more about what they want. And there's just a list of what they were looking for in different ways that they're they're trying to find messages, messages between government officials, uh, between Trump and others in the government, between government officials and Twitter. And crucially, Phil and Poppy, for messages that would have been sent around the time that Donald Trump's Twitter was suspended, not only on January 6th, but in the days after when that account was taken down. Caitlin, I was curious last night when I saw your reporting, saw the headline, was reading through the story. You're an expert at mining filings for nuggets that provide more context, more insight into ongoing investigations uh, that we didn't know beforehand. Should we expect uh, pieces like this to be coming out over the course of the coming weeks and months? Are we going to learn more about this through not necessarily official proceedings, but just in filings alone? Yeah, 
Absolutely, Phil. I mean, at least I hope that we will, um, because there's a lot of sealed proceedings that have been happening in this special counsel's investigation. And only whenever there's some sort of uh, decision by the court that the matter is final enough that they can release it, do they release it? And so there's still just a trove of information where the special counsel's office was getting information. And we just don't know how all of the proceedings went until we see the documents. Yeah, it's a great reminder that there's still a lot we don't know. Caitlin Pohl, it's great reporting as always. Thank you. It's a great reminder why we need Caitlin Poland yeah. to take through. I don't need a reminder why I need <laughs> Caitlin Poland. Amen to that. <laughs> uh, new this morning, though, to the tragedy that continues in Hawaii. Urgent questions about what caused those fires in Maui that have now been blamed for 106 deaths. And we want to remind you that number only accounts for 27 percent of the search being completed. A big focus is the power lines this morning. We don't know what started any of the fires, but there is video that may show a power pole faulting and then falling over seconds before these flames emerge. We should note this is not the blaze that destroyed Lahaina. This is a different part of the island last Monday. It is from a bird conservation center surfaced by the Washington Post. So watch what happens here. A few seconds in, you're going to see a big flash in the video you're watching right now. Then the camera pans several different times to the ceiling, to the ground, then back to the ceiling. By the time it refocuses, just a second here, you're going to see the flames. And at the same time of that first flash, the Washington Report reports 10 sensors went off in the town where the sensors are located. And experts say that flash is likely a, quote, arc flash, something that happens when a power line gets knocked down, releasing its power. Hawaiian Electric has not responded to the Washington Post, but they did release a statement saying, quote, we know there is speculation about what started the fires, and we, along with others, are working hard to figure out exactly what happened. CNN's Mike Valerio is live for us in the Maulea Checkpoint, Maui. Mike, we're hearing that hotspots continue to flare up in many areas several days from the initial fires. Phil, that's right. Good morning to you. And firefighters still have tons of work ahead of them. But I think that the emotional gravity point, you know, that we're focused on here uh, so deeply is the effort to identify the human remains that are found a couple miles behind the camera. And what we mean by that is that Governor Green was on the air with our terrific colleague, Caitlin Collins, a few hours ago, and he very much set the tone and set the tempo and expectations for people here all throughout the island that this not only will just be a few days to get all the wildfires under control, but it will be weeks until all of the dead are identified. So to that end, Phil and Poppy, we have a few numbers for you. 13 DNA profiles out of all of the bodies that have been found. That is what we have so far. Authorities are asking people to come into a community center right near Maui Central Airport so they can develop more DNA profiles, make more DNA matches. So far, they only have 41 DNA samples to try to make those matches. Now, earlier yesterday, we heard from a man who took it upon himself to show up at Maui Central Morgue to try to identify his father. His stepfather, I should say, was one of the people clinging to the rocks on Front Street, did not survive. His mother and his family dog did survive. Listen to what this man told us a couple hours ago. Uh, he's gone. I just want to identify the body. Uh, the police have really helped, uh, but I have run into a lot of people that I understand are tired. I'm tired too. I haven't slept in six days, and uh, 
and I, I just, like I said, I just want to identify his body and uh, put him at rest. So what has been analogized to Phil and Poppy, although completely different circumstances, but if you remember back to the days after 9-11, when finding human remains and the identification process took months, DNA crushed and very difficult to reconstruct the molecules and match them with the DNA from living family members. Governor Josh Green saying on our air earlier yesterday, that is the situation that we're dealing with here. And I think that that has yet to uh, sink in to the consciousness of the island because it was just a week ago that the unthinkable happened outside of the realm of possibility. Now to think that we could have weeks and weeks of not knowing who has died? How many people have died? It's just going to be a long process for this to continue. Poppy and Phil. Mike Valerio, thank you very much. Just adding to the pain of family members waiting for answers. That is going to take this long. Well, next hour, we're going to be joined by the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, about President Biden's response to the tragedy and his plans to visit Hawaii. Also, Donald Trump's GOP rivals for the presidential nomination, they're offering mixed reactions to that fourth indictment. And the new special counsel overseeing Hunter Biden's criminal case says his previous deal with prosecutors on that felony gun charge is now invalid. What does that mean for the president's son and his legal jeopardy? Ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. We're seeing a wide range of reaction from 2024 GOP candidates when it comes to President Trump's latest and fourth indictment. Governor Ron DeSantis called it, quote, a criminalization of politics. Senator Tim Scott says it's, quote, un-American and unacceptable. Will Hurd, the former Texas congressman, saying, quote, this is further evidence that Trump knew he lost the 2020 election and was ready to do anything it took to cling to power. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon, CNN political commentator Bakari Sellers, and Maura Gillespie, who served as the deputy chief of staff to Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Maura, I want to start with you. As somebody who's deeply ingrained in kind of Republican politics and uh, the House Republican Conference, you look at the range. Uh, Will Hurd has made very clear from the start that uh, Trump and Trump's behavior was going to be a central issue for him. Other Republican candidates who are higher up in the polls right now, still about 30 points down, have been very different and had a different posture. The different posture that I think befuddles people to some degree, since you're running against the guy, they're clearly seeing something in the numbers, though, that says don't go down the path of criticizing him. Why? Their campaigns have done their research, and for whatever reason, they choose to not say the truth and to not call us out for what it is. This is not normal. The man has been indicted four times, and he's about to release his report on Monday, uh, further proving that he won the election. It really does call into question his sense of judgment. His his character, obviously, is on display here as far as being indicted four times. But I think I was you know, disappointed by Tim Scott's reaction. Uh, it's not surprising that the campaigns are looking for people to target the weaponization uh, because they're going to point out things like Stacey Abrams not conceding. They're going to point out things like the Fannie Willis, um, her... Not being able to, yeah, not being able to question Doug Jones because of her yeah. fundraiser she had for his opponent. So they're going to call into these things to say that this is corrupt and an abuse of power uh, because they don't want to actually address the elephant in the room, pun intended, uh, but Donald Trump. <laughs> what do you make of Tim Scott calling it un-American? Moore is disappointed, and he he's the one who said, I'm going to run a, 
you know, positive campaign uh, and he's seeing a boost in poll numbers. Why is he choosing this route? I think Tim Scott's response is utter BS. That's first. Second, I think that Tim, Tim is actually good for the Republican Party. I think his positive vision on what the future of America should look like is actually good for the Republican Party. Um, I disagree with Tim on some of the substance and policy. You know, Tim and I differ on the the role of racism and Mm -hmm. the white supremacy in the founding of this country, et cetera. That has to be said. But I'm not sure uh, why Tim is afraid to take that next step. And I think Tim has a lot of growth in the numbers if he does take that next step. There is a little hedging, I think. And I think that hedging is the possibility of a political future on a ticket with Donald Trump. Because I think a lot of people understand that Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And so you can't go out there and slap the person and then want them to, uh, you know, want them to choose you to be the vice president. And there's a lot of Tim just wanting to run his own race and not worry about Donald Trump. The problem is that they put baby in the corner. They, they literally, they have to deal with the elephant that is Donald Trump. You can't run a race and not address the issue. And so, yeah, I'm disappointed in it, but I see the politics behind it. Tim is better than that answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but here we are. Donald Trump brings people down to his level. And the problem is none of them want to rise to a new level. Just, just for context, the inside joke between John and Macari, <laughs> we were talking about babies in a corner during the break. That's why they were laughing and pointing at one another. There wasn't much more to it than that. <laughs> thank, um, you, thank you, Phil, for that. You're welcome. Why are they laughing and pointing at each other? What happened? Um, I want to follow up on something more brought up. Because mm-hmm. since the former president tweeted about, or tr- truth, whatever he Mm-hmm. Truth social. Uh, yes, truth social. Truth. Not a verb. Truth. Um, <laughs> truth about uh, this alleged report he's yes. going to produce that is going to definitively prove fraud in Georgia, despite the fact that there were multiple audits, that every single vote was recounted, the mm-hmm. fact that this has been relitigated over and over again, both in court and on the state level by Republican officials, and every single time he has been proven to lie. Correct. My question, and, and First, actually, I want to show this because this is important. Governor Brian Kemp, Republican yeah, this is from Georgia, who is a rock-ribbed conservative. Mm-hmm. Republicans who like Republican policies, like Brian Kemp, tweeted, quote, the 2020 election in Georgia was not stolen for nearly three years now. Anyone with evidence of fraud has failed to come forward under oath and prove anything in a court of law. Our elections in Georgia are secure, accessible, and fair, and will continue to be as long as I am governor. The future of our country is at stake in 2024. That must be our focus. This, however, is going to pull all of these candidates who have refused to say anything negative about Donald Trump down this rabbit hole of, is it fraudulent? Is this report accurate? And we have seen this over and over again in the last seven years, mm-hmm. where you give Trump space if you're a Republican because you don't want to upset his base. And then you find yourself in this position where they're going to have to defend a report they know is a lie mm-hmm. or refute Trump and do the thing they've been scared of doing for the last six months. Look. Campaigns are about contrasts at the end of the day, even primaries. And this is what Bakari's pointing out. We all get, you know, the mathematical issue for these candidates. They want to be able to pick up Trump supporters and donors and possibly keep some VP role open so they're afraid to confront. But that ends up tagging you down a path where you're defining deviancy down, where you end up being complicit in a lie. Um, and look, I, I, I look forward to the report. Um, we all know what it's going to be. And your quote from Brian Kemp was exactly right. That's the refutation. It's court cases. It's individual states. It's audits. It's Republicans. And that needs to be said over and over again until all Donald Trump has left is a defense that he's in his own delusional world. But when candidates start unnecessarily, I think, like Tim Scott did, who's a, who is better than this, I think. I agree with Macari on this. 
um, says it's un-American and unacceptable. We need to just remember what's American and unacceptable is trying to overturn an election on the basis of a lie to stay in power. Mm-hmm. That's and, what's and, but I also want to, want to piggyback because she, she brought up some, some Republican talking points that I've been hearing a lot. And people want to compare it to Stacey Abrams or they want to compare mm-hmm. it to uh, Bush Gore. v. Gore, yeah. right? And, or they want to compare it to uh, I, Jeff Duncan had the audacity to put John Lewis in his mouth on Twitter yesterday when, when John Lewis and many others wanted to push back against the 2016 election because of Russian interference and everything else. The difference is there are paths and pathways, as Jack Smith said, to contest an election in the court of mm-hmm. law. If you think that an election was done wrong or you won the election or whatever, you can say that if you have proof or evidence, you can adjudicate those things. The difference between that and what Donald Trump did are the 170 overt acts they took mm-hmm. that Fannie, that, excuse me, Fannie laid out, Fannie Willis laid out in her indictment that showed that they actually took concrete steps in a conspiracy mm-hmm. to overthrow an election. They were breaking into facilities. It wasn't just, oh, my God, I'm in my head, I believe this. They were on phone calls actually taking, oh, it's, it's intent meets mm-hmm. action, which is the crime. So that is, that, that is the difference between this and everything and, else. And I agree. I just think that when they bring up this, you know, weaponization of power, we can't ignore the fact that Stacey Abrams did not concede to 2018 election. We can't ignore the fact that Bonnie Williams had this fundraiser. So yes, do I, it does not negate the fact that Donald Trump lost the 2020 election and he tried to, not only did he fail to concede, he also then tried to use his power to influence state officials and beyond to overturn the results of the election. It doesn't negate any of that, but to simply just brush that aside and say it's not fair or it doesn't matter, it shouldn't be ignored. But I think that's apples and elephants. Can can I just ask you? Yes. What's the point of doing it in this moment? And I completely okay. agree that I said that I didn't. Okay. I was disappointed by no. I'm saying I yeah. was disappointed by Tim Scott's response, but I think that's what not you're going to you see. Not you saying from, it more to be no, clear. No, I know. What's but the point just, of, of them I, making that argument? Because they're not going to go after Trump, which for whatever reason they're not going to go after him directly. So they go after what they see as a winning argument, Democrat, a winning. Yeah. It's easier to go after Democrats because they're not going to go after each other. Sure. They want to look beyond that. And yeah. what's at stake here is the integrity of our free and fair elections. Yeah, that's, which, that's Brian Kemp, I'm so glad you read that, is standing up for it. In yeah, as state. he did throughout the course totally. of November, December, totally. and January of 2020 and 2021. Remember, same time when everybody was saying in November, let Trump punch, in, punch himself out. Yeah. He said, nothing's going to happen. That's right. Nothing's going to happen. He's just, he's just venting. How, how'd that go for him? <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. I'm, you're coming back, right? Yes. Allegedly. <laughs> we'll, see <you> <laughs> we'll see you in a little bit. Uh, This now, North Korea has just confirmed, this is their first official confirmation, that the man you see on your screen, that is U.S. Army Private Travis King, is there in North Korea. We'll take you live to South Korea with the details on that ahead. And a judge in Orange County, California, called out of work and told a co-worker it's because he, quote, shot his wife. Now he's pleading not guilty to her murder. What we're learning about that story this morning. A judge in Orange County, California, has just pleaded not guilty to murdering his wife. The 72-year-old judge, Jeffrey Ferguson, is accused of killing his wife at their home earlier this month after an argument at a nearby restaurant. Prosecutors say Ferguson threatened his wife during the dinner, pointing his finger at her, mimicking a firearm. When they got home, prosecutors say, his wife said, quote, why don't you point a real gun at me? That's when, the prosecutors say, Ferguson shot her with a pistol. Now, arrest documents allege that within minutes of the murder, Ferguson sent a text message to his court clerk and bailiff that said, I just lost it. I just shot my wife. I won't be in tomorrow. I will be in custody. I am so sorry. The couple's son called 911 and Ferguson was arrested that night. 
Judge Ferguson, who prosecutors say was intoxicated at the time of the shooting, is facing murder charges, but he's out on bail. He's been ordered to wear an ankle monitor and stay away from weapons and alcohol. Wow. New this morning, for the first time, North Korea confirming publicly the U.S. Army Private Travis King has crossed into its territory and is there voluntarily. That's what they're saying. That is according to state-run media in North Korea. What we know is that King crossed into North Korea last month during a tour of the DMZ. Our Paula Hancox has been following this live from Seoul, Korea, and joined, Seoul, South Korea, and joins us now. Paula, first time official confirmation from North Korea. What else do we know? Well, Poppy, it's important to note that this is North Korea's version of events. We are not hearing directly from Travis King here, but state-run media has a very set idea of why King decided to run across the border last month. North Korea claims racism in the U.S. military was the reason U.S. private Travis King crossed into its territory, adding he was seeking refuge in North Korea or a third country. One month ago, King ran across the military demarcation line during a civilian tour of the demilitarized zone. Nothing had been heard from him since. Pyongyang, finally breaking its silence on the incident, claims King confessed that he, quote, harbored ill feeling against inhuman maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army. A U.S. defense official said they could not verify King's alleged comments and the focus remains on bringing him home safely. King ran across the border at the Joint Security Area, a heavily guarded area. Area. U.S. and South Korean soldiers were unable to stop him. Pyongyang claims King is, quote, disillusioned at the unequal American society. There are no direct statements from King or details of his whereabouts or condition. King had faced assault charges in South Korea, serving around 50 days in a detention facility. The army says he would have faced further charges if he had returned to the U.S. as planned. The day before he crossed into North Korea, King was taken to Incheon Airport by a military escort, but did not board the plane, claiming a lost passport to airport officials who escorted him back to departures. Get my son home. King's Get mother, son through a family spokesperson, is asking Pyongyang to treat her son, quote, humanely, asking for a phone call with him. Contact Pyongyang has not allowed with previous U.S. detainees. King's family has told CNN they feel helpless. Well, let me go get him, because I'm his big sister at this point. Well, let me go get him, because I'm his uncle. Now, the Biden administration has considered designating Travis King a POW, a prisoner of war, meaning that he has extra protection under the Geneva Convention. But officials do point out that he appeared to do this voluntarily. He was dressed as a civilian and he was part of a civilian tour group. Poppy, Phil. I'm Paula Hancock. You can see the pain uh, in his family just wanting answers and wanting him home. We appreciate the reporting. Thank you. So what's next after former President Trump has been indicted in Georgia? What we're hearing from officials in Fulton County about the timing and a possible mugshot. That's next. Just one day after being indicted by a Georgia grand jury, former President Trump posted that he will host a, quote, major news conference next Monday at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. He says he will present a report from his team regarding his false and repeatedly proven to be false claims that presidential election results in Georgia were rife with fraud. So what comes next? Joining us now, former prosecutor at the New York District Attorney's Office and professor at New York Law School, Rebecca Royfe, and former U.S. attorney in the Middle District of Georgia, Michael Moore. Uh, Michael, I, I want to start with some of the defenses that we've heard, not in court, 
but by Trump supporters, uh, lawyers for some of the other 18 uh, indicted co-conspirators, the idea that this is criminalizing speech, Mm -hmm. that this is criminalizing the act of being a lawyer or serving a client in law. What's the response to that? Well, I'm glad to be with you. I'll, I'll tell you that there will be some defenses like that. I mean, this will, they'll raise First Amendment defenses. They'll raise uh, political speech defenses. There'll be some unique immunity defenses that come out. Uh, and, and I think there's a fair argument to be made about some of the legal uh, claims that the lawyers will make. That, you know, well, you know, there's nothing criminal about trying to be creative in a case. There's nothing criminal about trying to strategize and think of ways, unique ways that you might win. What happens, uh, though, is when you cross the line into some type of criminal pursuit, then that advice or those discussions may become part of an overt act, is an that, intentional is act. Is that line forward. clear for, um, for somebody who doesn't follow the law? You know, it, for as, a lawyer. Because this, a lawyer. Is jo- this is at it the core of John Eastman's right. law, legal team's defense, right? right? And I think to some degree... Uh, several of the lawyers involved in this are pointing to this very thing. Is there a bright red line there? Yeah, it should, it should be clear. I mean, it'd be like a lawyer saying, you know, I'll tell you where to bury the body. Uh, you, you can't do that. Yeah. You know, uh, and so th- those things should be relatively clear. Again, we're a little bit in uncharted waters because this this is a unique case. And we, we've not seen a situation where um, you've had lawyers maybe as deeply involved in some of the conspiracy uh, some of the efforts, some of the overt and intentional acts to to yeah. move an illegal process forward. Making calls and being on calls well, to ask for legal things to be done. I want to get Re- Rebecca in here. Uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of uh, staff, has moved to move this to federal court. You get a more favorable jury pool likely that way, possibly. And you remove the, you know, you add an ability for a president to pardon because it, then it's not a state charge. Will he be successful? I think that there's a good chance he will be successful. He tried the same thing in the Manhattan case and he lost. But of course, the conduct involved in that case was not conduct that occurred while he was president during the course of his presidency. And the question on removal is, was this conduct part of his official duties? Did right. he ha- Does he have a federal defense here? That's- and it's a much stronger claim in this case than it was in Manhattan. And it He may, in fact, prevail, as would Mark Meadows. In fact, anybody working under them also could make this claim that they were working under a federal official and therefore can remove. So why do you think Meadows went A first and B by himself? Should we read anything into that? Is that normal? I mean, when I saw that, he wasn't with any of the other 18. He wasn't with the former president, perhaps more than... Yeah. (laughs) That's a good lawyer. Seemed that way, yeah. But I I was wondering if you... Following the lawyers is a great point. And that is one thing that people who watch these sorts of cases, especially one with so many defendants do is because, you know, who is representing whom is a critical question Mm -hmm. and does give you some insight that you might not otherwise have. So, you know, I do think that's the that that's the question. Maybe he's strategizing here. It's hard to know. But, you know, it is a possibility. They they allege 161 acts in this indictment. One hundred and fifty four of those occurred while Trump was president of the United States. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty strong claim to say. To remove it. Right. If you're the president or the chief of staff. And Rebecca brought up what Judge Hellerstein ruled here in New York just a couple of weeks ago um, on the hush money payment case. And he eviscerated that argument saying you can't move it to uh, you got to keep it in state court. You can't move it federal because these things trying to quiet this person um, doesn't relate to your job in office. This statute, we can pull it back up. 1442 says any officer of the United States under color of such office. 
Is there any chance, though, that he won't be successful in moving it to federal court? Because you can't say that you were trying to. Well, I suppose you can make the argument that you're trying to carry out your duties as president. But can you do that if you are committing these alleged crimes? Well, and again, they're alleged right now. And so that's the purpose of trying to have the tribunal in the federal court. But if you think about from a federal standpoint, you're an incumbent president. You're running for re-election in a presidential election. And this case is 100 percent about a presidential election. And so that's a pretty strong claim, again, to, to talk about whether or not it should be moved to federal court or whether or not it should stay in state court. It, 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 there's always a chance that they would find that uh, it, it should stay. But I think then you're going to have a, a litany of appeals up and there'll be you know, questions from now through 2026, probably, about where well, this case goes. Through 2026 is like two years after the right. election. <laughs> right. Oh, are you saying that something important is coming up? <laughs> uh, I'm saying that this thing that doesn't do, start in six months. Right. I, I, I joke to some degree, but this is a reality here. There's four indictments. He's the leading contender for the Republican nomination by 30-plus points. The legal and the political are intertwined, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. How does that impact or have an effect in any way on what prosecutors are doing, not just in Georgia, but with the special counsel's office up in New York as well? You know, the prosecutors are trying to keep their head down and do what they always do and ignore the fact that there's this clamor in the background, that there's this deadline in the background, a clicking, a, a ticking clock. But it's very hard to do that in real life. So, you know, how this is factoring into their decision making, I think it would be naive to say not at all. Um, but I think they are trying to proceed as they would proceed if this weren't happening in the hopes that this appears completely apolitical to the public, knowing that that's just never going to be the case. Right. Rebecca Royfe, uh, Michael Moore, thank you guys very much. Ahead, why the Arkansas Department of Education now says that a new advanced placement African-American studies class will not count towards graduation requirements. We'll explain ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Arkansas public schools are being told by the Department of Education in the state that a new advanced placement African-American studies program, quote, may not meet graduation requirements. In a series of tweets, a spokeswoman for Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders said the new course is a pilot and, quote, not a history course. She also tweeted, quote, the department encourages the teaching of all American history and supports rigorous courses not based on opinions or indoctrination. Shortly after taking office earlier this year, Sanders signed an executive order stating that critical race theory, discrimination, and indoctrination have no place in Arkansas classrooms. We should note the New York Times is also reporting that Little Rock Central High School, which, of course, was an all-white school that was integrated by the Little Rock Nine in 1957, was one of the schools that had signed up for this African-American Advanced Placement Studies course. The Arkansas Legislative Black Caucus expressing outrage over what the Department of Education is deciding here. In a statement they write, this further perpetuates the marginalization of African-Americans and denies all students the opportunity to learn about the unique history and experiences of our community. Bakari, John Moore, back at the table. Bakari, they're saying this is pilot. We teach, you know, a course that covers African-American history that you get credit for. This is not something to be concerned about. What do you say? Um... This is what structural racism looks like. Um, And I I have a fascinating theory about taking books out of schools, not teaching AP U.S. history. And for a long period of time, I thought it was that um, individuals were afraid of black young people having some level of self-empowerment and seeing the struggle, the perseverance, seeing the 
history that we made in this country. But I've come to realize is it's a lot of white folk not wanting to recognize or deal with what white people did in this country throughout history. And I think that what Sarah Huckabee Sanders is doing um, is, is the epitome of anti-intellectualism, um, is fear. Um, and I don't like having conversations about CRT because many people don't even know what it is from the, from the beginning. Um, and you have to start with educating the person and you just kind of get bored and, and it's a waste of time. But to be in Arkansas, where you have the history of the Little Rock Nine and say that we're not going to teach AP African-American history is absurd. But um, here we are in this country having to fight these battles. And as a father of of three black children, one at Howard now and two others starting pre-K, that is the, you know, what what do we do when our kids leave the house and how do we educate them? You have the fear of all these other things, but how do we educate them? And you, you kind of recognize that you now have to teach your kids in the home because of this fear perpetrated by many people on the right to educate your children. And I think it's a fear of recognizing what they actually did throughout history. Yeah, I, I think Bakari makes such an important point about it's the importance of learning the history behind the headlines. You know, if you don't know what happened in, in Little Rock High, High School in 1957, that's presumably part of that course. It also feels like from an optics perspective, if you're in politics, you might want to be cognizant of that reality before you go down. Oh, I, I, I think they're acutely aware of the optics and they feel it benefits them with the base. And I think that's part of the problem. It's politicizing history. It's politicizing books. It's turning American history into a battlefield. We should be doing is, is teaching much more civics education. I'm incredibly passionate about that. Much more American history. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Em- embrace all of it. Understand all of it. And, uh, and we can have a debate about, about you know, the, the outer reaches, and sometimes people try to push ideological agendas. But when you start trying to pull books and pull courses, that, that, that's just about, about dumbing down our discourse rather than elevating it up. But how much of this, though, is kind of a strategy, a plan, and how much of this is, you know, you look at the number, on, particularly on a state and local level, of CRT-related legislation, legislation related to uh, gender ideology, any of that type of stuff over the course of a 18-month period that just flew out into the public uh, bills and trying to push these issues in Republican legislatures in particular, um, didn't seem necessarily like this was some grand plan or strategy. They just thought there was political upside to it. Am I, am I minimizing this? More, am I not giving enough credit to some broader effort or plan here? Or is this just political uh, points that people feel like they can score. I do think it's political points for uh, suburban moms, maybe looking at that aspect of it. But my take on this is if we don't teach and learn about our past, how can we appreciate our progress and where we've come from? Mm-hmm. You know, we should want our children to learn critical thinking. So it's not indoctrination. I think that's uh, really misleading and let's put it kindly. Uh, I think it, having an education on all of our history, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as John said, is so important to our critical thinking skills as children and as young people. I know in college, I went to a liberal arts school where it was very you know, focused on the left of things, but I had to think for myself. I had to speak up, raise my hand if I had a question about something. We should want our children to do that. I think what Sarah Huckabee Sanders is doing is following DeSantis in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And I will point out that she has not made her endorsement for president yet. Yeah, I think you are minimalizing it, and I think that it well, that's is. That's why I, yeah, I think it is a part of a larger scheme. I think that anytime you can divide people along gender ideology or race or whatever it may be, these are culture wars that Republicans think that they're winning. And so, what happens is our children get caught. I mean, we're watching. I mean, in South in South Carolina, they they actually banned Ta-Nehisi Coates' book 
I mean, it, it, this is like patently absurd. And so instead of educating our children, we're making them dumber and Republican voters hope that dumb children vote for them. All right, guys. Um, thank you. That was a good conversation. Bakari Sellers, John Avon, Margaret Gillespie. Thanks, guys. And still ahead, why Hunter Biden's lawyer has just asked to withdraw from his case. The family made famous by that Oscar-winning movie, The Blind Side, is pushing back against ex-NFL star Michael Orr's claims that they kept millions of dollars from him. Special counsel investigating Hunter Biden says the plea deal between the Justice Department and the president's son is now invalid. Hunter Biden's lawyers were hoping the deal might be salvaged this week. But David Weiss says the agreement to resolve a felony gun possession charge was, quote, never approved by a probation officer and therefore is non-binding. CNN's Kara Scannell is joining us now. Uh, Kara, there was a back and forth in court filings yesterday. Uh, what should be the takeaway in terms of what this means for Hunter Biden going forward? So... There's one thing they are in agreement on, and that is that there is no plea deal over those tax misdemeanor charges. And so DOJ wanted those charges dismissed from the Delaware court because they say we want to charge him in a different district where these alleged crimes took place, California or Washington, D.C. And Biden's team is not objecting to that because the only reason it was filed in Delaware was because it was negotiated. But they are on polar opposite ends of what happens to this effort to resolve the felony gun possession charge. And so prosecutors, special counsel David Weiss, saying that because the probation officer never signed off on it, it was not a done deal. It is not binding. It's not real. And Biden's team is saying, but DOJ signed it and Hunter Biden signed it. So that alone should be enough because this type of deal is usually one that is worked out between two parties. It's usually just a bilateral agreement. But the deal is they put it before the judge. She wasn't too keen on it. No. She raised questions about its constitutionality. And now it's back in her court, literally, to decide yeah. where we go from here. And this is a federal gun charge that he had this diversion agreement on. And now that it is nowhere. Also, his lead attorney, Christopher Clark, withdrawing from the case. Why? Yeah. So Christopher Clark has been representing Biden during this whole five year investigation. And he was the point person dealing with DOJ, negotiating the plea deal, the drafting of the plea agreements. And now they're saying that he needs to withdraw from the case because he could be a witness in this as they're still trying to contest these plea agreements. And, you know, even though they've agreed on the tax thing, I don't think they really want to give that up. We've heard some of his other attorneys say right. they're hoping they end up in the same place that they were once a special counsel investigation concludes. All right, Kara Scannell, thanks for staying on top of it. You know, this morning continues right now. Morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We're so glad you're with us. There's a lot to get to. Let's start with five things to know for this Wednesday, August 16th. Donald Trump now has nine days to turn himself in after facing his fourth indictment. We're now learning he's expected to be booked at the Fulton County Jail in Georgia. And new reporting reveals that Trump ally Rudy Giuliani is staring down hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills and sanctions amid mounting lawsuits and criminal charges all related to his work for Trump after the 2020 election. On court, Giuliani says his legal troubles have left him effectively out of cash. And the death toll is rising in Hawaii, surpassing 100 now at 106. President Biden says he'll travel to Maui soon once his visit will not interrupt the recovery efforts on the ground. And the family depicted in the Oscar-winning film The Blind Side is pushing back this morning on claims from retired NFL star Michael Orr that they withheld millions of dollars from him. They claim Orr said he would plant a negative story about them in the press unless they paid him 
$15 million. And in just one month with Inter Miami, Lionel Messi has his new team reaching new heights. Messi scored his ninth goal in six games after a 4-1 victory over Philadelphia Union. Inter Miami now heads to the League's Cup final. He's good, Poppy. He's very good. <laughs> CNN This Morning starts right now. So I want I I yeah. want to take my kids to Miami yeah. just to go take them to see Lionel just Messi. Just to see Lionel Messi. Yes. Um, you should use my expert analysis that I just <laughs> gave you that he's good at soccer. You're welcome. Thank you for yeah. that, Phil Mattingly. Uh, this morning we are tracking several developments as Donald Trump faces felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia. This is what's new overnight. The Fulton County Sheriff says the former president will be arrested and booked at the county jail when he surrenders. The district attorney has given Trump and his 18 co-defendants until noon next Friday to turn themselves in. Now, Trump says he'll be holding a, quote, major news conference on Monday to prove the election was somehow rigged in Georgia, even though multiple recounts and court cases have proven over and over and over again Joe Biden was the winner and Trump's lawyers lost, withdrew every one of those cases they brought in court. Rudy Giuliani, one of Trump's alleged co-conspirators, says he'll surrender in Georgia sometime next week, and he's slamming the DA for using RICO racketeering charges. The same Rico, same type of charges he used to prosecute mafia leaders back in the 80s. She's a, a politician uh, and not a lawyer, not an honest, honorable lawyer. This is a ridiculous application of the racketeering statute. There's probably no one that knows it better than I do. Uh, this is not meant for election disputes. I mean, this is ridiculous what she's doing. Also, I don't know if she realizes it because she seems like a pretty incompetent, sloppy prosecutor. And another co-defendant, Trump's former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is now fighting to move his case from state court to federal court so we can try and get it dismissed. That's the most fascinating part of all of it for me. We'll get to that in a little bit, but let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig. Good morning. Okay, so we know these new things out of Georgia, Fulton County. What does this tell us? Yeah, so all four indictments are now in. It's a lot. So let's take a moment. Let's sure. assess where we are and what's next. Of course, Fulton County is the newest one. So what's happening in that case? The judge has given the parties until August 25th to surrender. I should say the DA has given the defendants until August 25th next Friday to surrender. That's the easy way. If they do that, they come in themselves, their process. If anybody does not surrender by then, then the DA has the right to send out law enforcement officials to make an arrest. We'll see if anyone tries to press that. The other big issue, and we just said this word, removal. Get ready for a lot of talk about removal. Mark Meadows is already trying to do this. Donald Trump will try to follow. In a nutshell, what this means yep. is if a federal official gets charged with a state crime that relates to that federal official's official job duties, you can get the case moved Like from being president or chief of staff? Right. Within the legitimate scope of those jobs, important qualification, you can get the case moved over to federal court and then potentially dismissed. So these are really important motions. Mark Meadows has already done this. Trump is sure to follow. The other thing that we're watching for here is we have 19 defendants in this case. That's a lot. And a lot of these folks are facing criminal charges for the mm -hmm. first time. Are people going to try to save themselves, cooperate and flip? And if so, are they going to be able to take prosecutors up and up this essentially hierarchy chart? Watch and see if anyone starts pleading guilty. Watch and see if there's any cooperation agreements or what we call an information, which sort of would indicate cooperation. A lot of what's in the Georgia indictment 
uh, is part of Jack Smith's, one of his, of his sure. most recent indictment. Talk, walk us through those two. Well, there's three other outstanding cases. Yeah. So now we're into the federal cases. This is Jack Smith's 2020 election interference case. The big issue there is what will the trial date be? Now, DOJ last week put in a brief asking for January 2nd, yes. 2024. Pretty aggressive time frame. Trump has not responded yet. His response is due later this week. I think it's fair to say he's going to want later, maybe never, certainly after the election. And then the judge is holding a hearing to decide the trial date and other scheduling issues on August 28th, a week from Monday. Now, the other Jack Smith federal case, now we're talking about the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. They are going through how are we going to handle classified documents. Now, remember, DOJ returned a superseding indictment, a sort of version 2.0, where they added this third defendant, Mr. D'Olivera, and added three charges against Donald Trump. And so the question is, is that going to compromise the May 2024 trial date? Again, the dynamic Trump's going to want to push back. DOJ is going to say, let's keep it. And then finally, let's not forget the first of the cases to land, the Manhattan DA's case about the hush money payments. They're going through pretrial motions and they have a trial date of March of 2024. Calendar? Okay, look 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 how wide open 2024 is. This looks great. (laughs) Um, We have an election. In November of 2024, New York, the hush money case, their trial is scheduled for March. That's definitely going to go through April. Mar-a-Lago, the Florida case we were talking about, that is set for trial starting in May. That's going to go into July. Now, where are the other cases going to fit? Let's take Jack Smith's January 6th case. They want to start it in January. That is, they do not have enough time to get that in before the New York case. And then we have Fonnie Willis's case. There's no place Because you can't go so close to the election. They're not going to start. If they start a trial in August, that's going to run right through the key months of the general election. There's no way we're going to have a Especially a RICO case. Especially a RICO case. So I don't see any room for Fonnie Willis's case before the election. Even Jack Smith's case, someone's going to have to get rid of this case. I mean, Alvin Bragg, the DA on the New York case. You mean move it. Move it. Yes. Not dismiss it, but move it. Let's be clear. Alvin Bragg has said publicly, he's on a little bit of a PR campaign where he said, hey, If I have to try to come off this trial date to accommodate the others, I'm willing to try to do that. All right, Ellie, thank you so much. We'll get more with you in a little bit. Phil. Well, the only thing keeping pace with Trump's mounting legal woes are apparently the strategies to defend him. Here's a sampling of how some of Trump's allies are responding to this Georgia indictment. Imagine if this had been applied to Al Gore's supporters when he contested Florida in 2000. This is a direct threat to the American system of the rule of law. There were alternate electors sent in 1876. There were alternate ones sent in 1960. On advice of counsel, Trump asked Pence to kick it back to the states for recertification, where state legislatures are constitutionally empowered to determine elections. That's called politics. Alternate electors had legal precedent of being selected and chosen in the Kennedy-Nixon 1960 election. Joining us now, CNN political analyst and senior political correspondent for The New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Uh, Maggie, there's, there's a lot to dig into here, but, but one of the things I want to start with, uh, and I think the team, and Poppy knows I've been talking about this all morning, uh, and I think yesterday afternoon, last night too, is the alleged report that the former president has decided he's going to release. It's definitely going to definitively lay out fraud that everyone and their mother and every court has repeatedly said is not true. Um, The intent behind this, what is it? 
So my colleague Jonathan Swan and I reported yesterday that a number of Trump's aides and allies woke up yesterday, several hours after he had been indicted, to in Georgia for uh, allegedly trying to subvert the election and being part of a conspiracy to do so, to find that he had posted this social media uh, posting saying there is going to be a major news conference on Monday where he is going to show this report. We dug into it. We learned that Liz Harrington, a Trump aide who works in communications, at least in part compiled what is more than a 100-page report uh, about Georgia, specifically, as we understand it, uh, and about what she believes and what he believes, uh, despite all kinds of evidence to the contrary, is widespread fraud in that race, and that this is what he was going to move forward with. It's unclear whether this press conference go f goes forward, but that's what it refers to. And Phil, we should note, just you know, to the point that you guys were just making about the various layers of his legal travails here, Liz Harrington is an aide who shows up, albeit unnamed, in another of the indictments that Trump is facing, the one related to Mar-a-Lago documents, she was in the room, according to multiple people, when Trump was brandishing what he described as a, a secret military document that he could have declassified as president. Your piece uh, with Jonathan is so interesting this morning. The headline is uh, Trump taunts test limits of release. And you're right, Mr. Trump is now probing the limits of what the criminal justice system will tolerate and the lines that Judge Tanya Chutkin sought to lay out about what he can and cannot say. He is really pushing here in a way that could really hurt him in terms of how this trial is conducted, when this trial is conducted. And so Judge Chutkin, and he has been attacking prosecutors and other judges in these various cases, but Judge Chutkin, who oversees the J6 case against him at the federal level, warned at a hearing on Friday with the two parties that there was clearly going to be a limit to Trump's free speech. Now, his lawyers and his advisors argue he's the frontrunner for, for the Republican nomination. He's a political candidate. He should have a fair amount of leeway because of that. And she was suggesting there are going to be limits despite mm -hmm. that because the laws of the court have to come first. He went within a short time of that hearing and began posting on Truth Social, his social media website, other people's uh, posts, I guess we'd call them truths, about Judge Chutkin, uh, you know, adding some of his own commentary. Generally, it was other people's. One included a, a very large picture of her. Mm -hmm. And so he is very clearly testing the terms of his release, both in that case and, and I would say with these attacks on prosecutors, in others. Poppy, uh, you know, some lawyers say, and we talk about this in the piece, mm -hmm. other defendants, if they were doing similar things, would be in jail. Now, yeah. it's very complicated to think of something like that happening to somebody with a Secret Service detail, but mm -hmm. there is the question of will the judge or the prosecutors seek some kind of recourse as he continues yeah. to talk? Well, she did threaten to move it up the more he talks about, mm -hmm. not the personal threats, but about, you know, discovery. Right. What she right. It's, what she suggested was that she may be forced to preserve the sanctity of the jury pool and witnesses. She may be forced to move the trial date up yeah. sooner uh, if this continues. And so we'll see if the government tries to suggest that he has already breached that. Mm. Maggie, for the last several months, probably longer, there's been a lot of speculation about Mark Meadows, his role in all of this, regardless of the special counsel investigation or the Georgia investigation. He was obviously indicted uh, in the Georgia case. He moved alone yesterday, or his legal team moved alone yesterday to try and shift things from state court to federal court. Uh, I was interested in the fact that he did it by himself. He didn't do it with any of the other 18 uh, indicted uh, co-conspirators, including the former president. Uh, and then he moved first. What do you, what's your sense of that dynamic right now? 
I think the moving first was was significant, and I think that you are going to see a pretty aggressive defense by Mark Meadows in that case. I think that they are trying to lay down a marker that this ought to be in federal court. I'm not really surprised, Phil, that it was only him. I don't think that in a RICO case where defendants are arguing they're not part of a conspiracy, that they all want to necessarily move together. I think that Meadows is going to make a specific argument as a former chief of staff. But as you note, Meadows is a focus of specific attention for a lot of people, for people around Trump, because people have wondered what he has said, for prosecutors, because he's one of the people who knew a lot. Now, he has made, he clearly was not especially helpful to investigators in Georgia. I mean, you can just read the indictment and see that. But I think you are going to see him try to argue very extensively that he should not have to face trial in a state court in Georgia. Does it indicate anything to you, though, that he was not indicted in uh, Jack Smith's probe about January 6th and he is indicted here just in terms of cooperation? I don't want to speculate about what he may or may not have done in other cases. We know that with January 6th uh, House Select Committee, he partially cooperated. He turned right. over thousands of texts and then would not give an interview. Here, he, he you know, does not seem to have done a, a whole hell of a lot, although, as I understand it, he had been brought in, I think, at some point by prosecutors. He is very apparent in the federal indictment. As you say, there are there are scenes that relate to him, but he was not indicted. But a number of people, Poppy, mm-hmm. were not indicted by Jack Smith in that case. And so I, I would like to see where this goes as yeah. we go forward. That's fair. All right. Maggie Haverman, thanks, as always. So we have new CNN reporting this morning revealing just how financially taxing defending the former president has been for Rudy Giuliani. And new overnight, the death toll in Maui has risen. CNN gets a first look on the ground, the devastation in Lahaina. The White House is promising money, federal assistance to residents and and a visit from the president to the disaster area. Next, we're going to speak with White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre about the president's response. Stay with us. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Brand new this morning, we're getting our first look at just how badly wildfires have ravaged Lahaina. Charred cars, houses that look like they melted. The scope, it's almost hard to grasp or even fathom. FEMA is on the ground looking for missing people. Here's how the governor describes the process. If you're lucky in a circumstance like this, you get to see fingerprints. So um, it's very hard. But that's why what we're doing is we're asking all of our, uh, our loved friends and family in the area who have any concern to go get swabbed at the Family Support Center so that we can match people genetically. Uh, This is much like you see um, in a war zone or what we saw with 9-11. President Biden has issued a federal disaster declaration. Again, you're looking at this new video right now. It's absolute devastation. It's almost hard to get your head around. The federal government has deployed significant resources to the area. Biden, however, didn't actually weigh in himself publicly until yesterday, speaking out while visiting Milwaukee, touting his Bidenomics agenda. Biden telling the crowd that he and the First Lady, Jill Biden, do plan to visit Maui. We've made clear they don't want to infringe on the recovery efforts up to this point. Joining us now is White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. Karine, we're we're looking at this new video. I know you've been, uh, the West Wing has been receiving regular reports from the ground from uh, FEMA Administrator Deanna Criswell. At this moment, does the president believe that the administration is doing absolutely everything it can, or are there things that, on the federal side, he wants to add, given the scale of this tragedy? 
For, first of all, Phil, um, thanks, first of all, thank you for having me. I want to say uh, we are praying for those who have lost so much, who have lost loved ones, uh, their community, their household, and their businesses. We are incredibly thankful to the first responders and the, the really very brave uh, firefighters who have been dealing with this fire from the moment uh, it began. So I, I want to be very clear, and you, as you mentioned, you heard, you all heard directly from the president, he takes his job incredibly seriously, which is why uh, he mobilized uh, the federal government uh, to make sure that we did everything that we can on the ground. You talked about the major, uh, the major disaster declaration. The president was able to approve that within hours of when the governor requested to that because that's how seriously he took this and he is taking this. We have dozens of agencies, federal agencies and departments who are working hand in hand with our local partners uh, and our local uh, state officials to make sure that the people in Maui are getting what they need. And you heard the president talk about what the FEMA, what the FEMA has been able to do. When you think about 50,000 meals, more than 50,000 meals being delivered, 75,000 liters of water, think about thousands of cots, thousands of blankets, all of these things are incredibly important. You see the Department of Transportation deal with, dealing with uh, working closely with commercial airlines to get folks out. Uh, and so we are taking this incredibly seriously. The president has mentioned, you heard him publicly say, that the first lady and, and, him, and, and himself are going to be going to Hawaii when we know uh, they are not being disruptive. We see FEMA search and rescue. They're sifting through uh, ashes, five-mile radius of ashes. Right. And that's going to take some time. And you all are reporting more than 100 souls lost. This is a city that has been completely devastated. You think about the history, the native history, generations of history uh, on, that, on that island that have now been ruined. So we're going to continue to be there, not just for the short term, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And, and sadly, this president has had to deal with many uh, disasters uh, in the past right. two years. And he has shown up and he has been there. And we have uh, federal, uh, federal assistance continuing in, in those uh, certain other states and cities that are still dealing with their own disasters. So we are going to be here for the people of Maui until they, until they need us throughout this time. You know, it, it's a good point that you bring this up. I've heard from a lot of people inside the White House, the focus on disaster relief. It's one of the primary issues. The president puts a lot of pressure on his team to deliver on. It's a, it's a critical component of what the federal government can do, which is why I want to ask you this question. And in, you guys will probably think that it's minor and we're making too much of it. But the idea of not saying anything until yesterday publicly, why? Well, I, I would disagree with that, Phil. Um, we, the president was, uh, we, when I was with him in Utah and he was out there to talk the, about the PACT Act, as you know, an incredibly historic, important piece of legislation. When he was out there, he, at the top of, of his uh, remarks, he talked about what was going on in Hawaii and how we were moving forward with the federal whole of government response. So he has been talking about this. You heard, you saw the FEMA, uh, the FEMA administrator right. in the briefing room yesterday, actually zoomed in the briefing room on Monday, and I shouldn't say yesterday, while she was, at, while she was in Hawaii right. talking about the efforts, what we're doing, the federal government. I just listed out all the things that we have been doing since day one. Day one, we have had dozens of uh, federal agencies and departments on, working with the folks on the ground, doing everything that we can to be helpful. And it doesn't stop. 
there. Again, we're going to, this is a long-term effort. And so, look, you're going to continue to hear from the president. Obviously, he's, he, he's eager to, to head out to Maui to see for himself. And you see the president. If you, if you know this president, you know how much he cares about people. You know uh, how much he cares about folks who have lost so much. You have covered him, Phil. You know how he deals with these types of unfortunate situations. Right. So, of course, he's eager to go out there. We just have to make sure it happens where we are not disrupting what's occurring on the on the ground, the rescue efforts that are occurring on the ground. And that Understood. is incredibly important. Um, you know, based on our interactions in the briefing room, I have about 3,000 questions related to the IRA <laughs> uh, in a second. But before I get to that, um, yeah. you guys, I know your position on, uh, yeah. on the special counsel, on the president's son, on any of those related issues. But I have picked up some frustration from some of the president's advisors that it ended up in a special counsel situation. What's your read? What is the president thinking right now? So first of all, Phil, we missed you in the briefing room. Congratulations Thank on you. your uh, <laughs> on moving to New York, my home city. Really excited for you. Look, you know, you know our position, as you just stated, as you were asking this question of me. We're going to be very clear here. We're going to be consistent, as we have been throughout the past two years. The Department of Justice is independent. We do not comment on any criminal investigation as it relates to uh, what's occurring with the former president, as it relates to uh, Hunter Biden. We've been very clear. We refer everyone. To to uh, his representatives. The president loves his son. He is proud of how his son is rebuilding his life. And as far as anything specific about uh, any investigation, any criminal investigation, we just are going to be uh, consistent and just not common. I do want to ask you about the Inflation Reduction Act, about to turn one, I think, tomorrow. Um, the thing it's today, that, Phil. Is it today? It's, today. it's you know, yeah. the year just flew by. Um, <laughs> you mentioned the PACT Act as well. It was a burst of legislative wins for the president, and the president made clear that this year was going to be about implementation, and there has been very clear results related to implementation. You've got, you know, $110 billion in clean energy manufacturing, a billion dollars in resiliency grants. You talk about the 15 million people saving, I think, an average, according to you guys, $800 on health insurance, the capping of insulin. The thing that I think, and this has been an issue for you guys for the last two plus years, connecting that to how the public feels or what the public knows, if you look at poll after poll after poll, continues to be an issue. And yet there seems to be a sense inside the White House, it's going to turn. People are starting to figure it out. How, how do you know that? Why? So look, if you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, yes, it's a one-year anniversary, and it's a key part of Bidenomics. That's also important to note. And look, we're talking about investing in America. Uh, we're talking about a, a fair tax code. Uh, we're talking about a, 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 the biggest, largest climate uh, action investment ever, as we were just talking about uh, what's going on in Maui and the extreme weather. These are all incredibly important things here. Here's an example, of, as, as I'll, I'll provide to you. The president was in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Yesterday, he went directly to the American, uh, to the American people in Milwaukee. Right? He talked about uh, how invest, how the Inflation Reduction Act, and also the bipartisan infrastructure legislation, and also, the, also the Chips and Science Act. All of these important historic pieces of legislation are creating a manufacturing boom. He went to Ingotine, a manufacturing uh, company that is now, because of the Inflation Reduction Act, is going to double their efforts. When you think about uh, the the wind, uh, the wind, uh, the wind turbine 
pipeline generators. When you think about the bipartisan infrastructure law, it's going to now manufacturing EV charging stations. All of these things are important. And you look at Wisconsin, just specifically looking at Wisconsin, $3 billion of com companies are investing, $3 billion in Wisconsin. 150,000, more than 150,000 jobs were creating in the last two years because of the president's Bidenomics, right? Because of his economic plan. All of these things are important. 2.5% unemployment right. in Wisconsin. And you think about the national unemployment level, which is under 4%. So this is what the president's going to continue to do, talking about how his plan is investing in America, how we're lowering costs uh, for the American people. And that's what they want to see. So we're going to continue to have those conversations. You're going to hear from the president. You're going to hear from the vice president. You're going to hear from his cabinet secretaries. And we're going to continue to talk, speak directly to the American people. And also, I think what you were asking me about the polling, you were asking me why we yeah, think I mean, to that, uh, he's underwater to in Wisconsin. Translate. You're talking about Wisconsin. He's underwater in Wisconsin. No. I know, and I understand it. But you have to remember, Phil, these are long-term investments, right? These are long-term investments, which, right. which Americans are going to start to see. And as you know, Phil, you know this probably better than I. You've covered uh, a couple of administrations at, at this point. The, you know, polling don't tell the whole entire story. That's why we are going to continue to tell uh, that story. All right, Karine Jean-Pierre, very professional. When the landscapers drove behind you, been there, know that. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate your time as always. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, Phil. Great conversation, Phil. All right, ahead for us, the family made famous by the Oscar-winning movie The Blind Side is now pushing back hard against retired NFL star Michael Orr, who claims they withheld money from him. What they're saying next. Well, just into CNN, actor Alec Baldwin could once again face manslaughter charges for the shooting on the movie set Rust after a forensic report released Tuesday found that his revolver would only fire if the trigger was pulled. Independent gun testing on the weapon used in the fatal shooting shows that the trigger on the gun had to be pulled, the gun fired normally, and did not malfunction. Involuntary manslaughter charges were dismissed against the actor in April after evidence suggested the opposite, that he may not have pulled the trigger. And that's something Baldwin has repeatedly said since the death of cinematographer Halia Hutchins. It wasn't in the script for the trigger to be pulled. Well, the trigger wasn't pulled. I didn't pull the trigger. So no. you never pulled the trigger? No, 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 no. I, I would never point a gun at anyone and pull a trigger at them, never. never. That was the training that I had. You don't point a gun at me and, and pull the trigger. On day one of my instruction in this business, people said to me, never take a gun and go click, 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 because even though it's incremental, you damage the firing pin on the gun if you do that. Don't do that. CNN previously reported that the dismissal decision didn't absolve Baldwin of cr criminal culpability and charges may be refiled. We'll follow that. Meantime, the family made famous by that Oscar winning movie, The Blind Side, is now pushing back against former NFL star Michael Orr's claims that they withheld a lot of money from him. The Tui family's lawyer called Orr's accusations a $15 million shakedown on Monday. Orr filed a petition saying that that family lied about, his, about their plans to adopt him and put him under a conservatorship instead. He says they used that conservatorship to keep millions of dollars from him. Bryn Grass is following this. She's with us at the table again this morning. You said yesterday... There is more to this story, and there is. And I'm going to say it again. There's yeah. actually more to the story, I think. There's still questions that we don't know answers to. Like, why did Michael Orr come forward now? He learned about the conservatorship back in February. Why file this lawsuit now? Well, the two have something to say about that. Look at the long statement that their attorneys yeah. released on their behalf. They essentially said, just as you said, it was part of a shakedown that he's actually approached the family trying to get $15 million out of them, saying they'll, he'll plant some negativity in the press if they don't give him money. And they actually said that he 
he's tried to do this multiple times, which is something their son, SJ, said to uh, Bleacher uh, um, Barstool, Barstool Sports uh, just yesterday. Let me read you, though, something about the conservatorship, because that was another question we had, right. right? Why are they not addressing? Is this a conservatorship or, or an was adoption. this an adoption? Well, they do address it a little bit. Let me read you what they said in this statement. It says the Tuies have always been upfront about how a conservatorship from which not one penny was received was established to assist with Mr. Orr's needs, ranging from getting him health insurance and obtaining a driver's license to helping with college admissions. Should Mr. Orr wish to terminate the conservatorship either now or at any time in the future, the Tuies will never oppose it in any way. Answers a little bit, but also leaves some questions. How far did that conservatorship go, right? We know that it's possible they could have still been making money off of Michael Orr. So those are some still questions we're still bringing to the attorneys and not quite getting responses just yet. A different side of this, though, if you can believe it, the actors are receiving backlash from the blind side and this all controversy playing out in real life. Uh, and the actor, Quentin Aaron, who played Michael Orr, talked to the New York Post and was having to not only, you know, respond to these allegations, saying he's devastated by them, but also defend Sandra Bullock, who won an Academy Award for her role playing Leanne Tui. And uh, she's apparently receiving a lot of online hate uh, really? based on what's happening right now in the public. And so he said about this for Sandra, Sandra did nothing wrong. That's my girl. And she's going through a really tough time right now. I really feel like they should leave her alone and stop trying to come at her. So that's a different angle to this, if you can believe it. People wondering why Sandra Bullock didn't research the role more? How does she not know about this? I mean, obviously, I mean, armchair quarterback book. here. Maybe, like, it's the based book, book. <laughs> like, it's from Michael Lewis, but right. that's the dumbest, th sorry. Okay, um, I'm like, are, I'm are fascinated with the story. That element is like people, you, also, you have too much time on your hands. Did we, yeah. to Phil's point, did we know all of these issues he had with the family mm -hmm. when this movie came out? No, I mean, no. this is so. How could she have known? Exactly. Yes, no. Okay. That, that's not the element to focus on. That's just dumb. <laughs> Wait, the story, are you surprised though, again? Is, uh, yeah. this, this, is, this is what's There's happening. a lot more to thank come, Brent. Thank you so much. I suspect we'll see you tomorrow. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, Rudy Giuliani was one of the pioneers of using the RICO statute in prosecutions. Now he finds himself targeted by it after his indictment in Georgia. We're also learning he's struggling to pay his mounting legal bills. More on that coming up. Rudy Giuliani is saying a lot of things right now, including that he's effectively out of money as he faces hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills and sanctions after defending former President Donald Trump. But he's also defending himself by saying this. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that went after the mafia. I haven't changed one bit. When Giuliani was federal prosecutor in New York, he pioneered the takedown of mafia bosses using RICO. Exactly what he's facing now. He's being targeted by a similar racketeering statute in the state of Georgia after his indictment there. Caitlin Polance joins us from Washington, D.C. Gosh, it is fascinating. Um, and he's also saying, I know Rico better than anyone. This isn't the proper use of it. Is it? Right. He's saying that he wants to fight this case in Georgia he, now that he is indicted criminally in that state related to what he was doing for Donald Trump after the election. But Rudy Giuliani actually has a lot of other things on his plate right, that, right now. Namely, uh, he appears to be out of cash. Now, he hasn't been able to share exact details in court. He's trying to not do that because he says it would embarrass him and draw attention to his misfortunes. But we were able to pick through some court filings that do outline in lawsuits that he's facing related to his work for Donald Trump after the 2020 election, just how much 
his bills have piled up right now. So right now he has $181,000 in current bills. That includes a judgment from a court last week saying he had to pay a phone bill for his company from 2020, that he has to pay uh, legal fees for two Georgia election workers who are suing him. That's what the sanction would be, an $89,000 sanction. So that's not even what happens if he were to lose that case. And then on top of that, he has a lot of bills for just keeping keeping a hold of the records that he had in his various cell phones and other electronic equipment. He has that all in a company, and it costs money to do searches for those records every time he's getting sued. And also, it costs money just to hold them with that company so that he has access to his electronic records. It's a lot of legal bills. But on top of that, uh, he has debts. And one of the debts that has become public in these court proceedings is that he had a $320,000 debt to this company that was hosting his electronic records. Donald Trump's PAC, Save America, has paid that off. We learned that from the court filings. But this is not even capturing the full scope of the amount of money Rudy Giuliani is just being bogged down with in order to fend off just lawsuits related to the 2020 election and other court proceedings. If he's actually out of cash, does he just have two options, pro bono representation or a public defender? Those would be some options. The other options would be to get some cash based on some of the assets he has. So one of the things that we know Rudy Giuliani has done recently is put a three-bedroom Manhattan apartment up for sale for $6.5 million. It's only been listed for a couple days, and as far as I can tell, it doesn't have a bid or a a sale on it yet. But he's listing that property Mm -hmm. of his in Manhattan. But, you know, Phil and Poppy— Step back, step me back a second. We're talking about bills he has right now for lawsuits that have been going on that are not even at the end. If he gets judgments against him for things where he is already conceding he was making false statements about the 2020 election, those bills could skyrocket. And that doesn't even factor in to how much it costs to defend yourself in criminal court. All right. Caitlin Polans, great reporting. Thank you. And joining us now. CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avon. All right, John, uh, I always ask uh, our friend of the show. He's not here anymore, but he will be back. John's not a friend of the show. No, he's a friend of the show as well. That's my point. Scott Jennings, whenever I'm talking about Mitch McConnell, I look at Scott and say, that's your former boss. Tell me what's up. (laughs) That's your former Former boss. It is. What's up? This is, is a tragedy. Um, I mean, in, in, in so many ways, Rudy Giuliani's association and defense with Donald Trump has destroyed his reputation and his personal finances. And he's done it basically all for free, uh, which is to say that, you know, for as acting as Donald Trump's lawyer, there's no evidence he was actually paid for that work. Now, some of his expenses have been reimbursed. And you saw part of that from Caitlin. But this is a man who in 2018, uh, you know, it, during his divorce proceedings, had an estimated net worth of more than $30 million that came out in, in court. So this is a man who was very wealthy in the wake of his lifetime of public service when he was pioneering the RICO statutes. Uh, and to see him now to this place... Uh, where the irony of RICO statutes being used against him in the Georgia case, the the sheer volume of court cases designed, all all focused on his defense of Donald Trump and the damage he has done to his reputation, lighting it on fire. The man who was America's mayor, one of the most successful prosecutors of his generation, now having a hard time selling his apartment. Yeah, Um, it's It's so critical to New York. Enormously effective mayor, enormously influential mayor, beyond 9-11. And and to see where he is today is, is a tragedy. And, 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 you know, you would think that the former president would, would help him more than he has, given how much he sacrificed for him. 
You would think. John Avo. Thanks, Pat. Well, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation is now leading the investigation in, uh, into last Friday's police raid of a local newspaper. The situation, it's garnered national attention and sparked serious First Amendment concerns. The publisher and owner of that paper joins us next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. We do have new developments this morning in that police raid of a local newspaper in Kansas. The Kansas Bureau of Investigations is now leading that probe into last Friday's raid of the Marion County record. Police searched both the home and the office of the newspaper's owner, and they seized computers and phones and servers of reporters and editors. And authorities claim the raid stemmed from an investigation into identity theft. A coffee shop owner had accused the paper of illegally obtaining documents about a DUI she received about 15 years ago. But the paper says they got those from a source. They were then trying to verify the information and that they only published it after she started accusing them publicly. We should note the coffee shop owner previously barred the paper from covering a public event with a Republican member of Congress. Marion County record publisher and editor Eric Meyer says that his 98-year-old mother Joanne, who was a co-owner of the paper, by the way, collapsed and died on Saturday, the day after police raided her home. According to the paper, Meyer had been, quote, stressed beyond her limits and overwhelmed by hours of shock and grief after the illegal police raids. And Eric joins us now. Good morning, Eric. We are all deeply Good morning. sorry for the loss of your mother. Thank you. Appreciate that. Of course. We reached out to the police about all of this because they did this and they were handling the investigation prior. And we didn't hear back, but I do want to read people a statement from the police chief on Sunday. Said, I believe when the rest of the story is available to the public, the judicial system that is being questioned will be vindicated. Have you gotten any more answers from police about why they did this? We finally were able to obtain the probable cause affidavit that... uh, to support the search warrant. Uh, It was filed three days after the searches were conducted, which is a little suspicious, Uh, but uh, it it interestingly refutes most of the thing claims against us. And one of the allegations was that we obtained this document and gave it to the vice mayor. Uh, And in the document itself, the vice mayor says that she got it from the same source we got it from, uh, which supports our contention. One of the things we don't understand is we actually told them about this. This was our disclosure to them mm-hmm. that we thought that there was a document out there that maybe somebody had improperly done. And also there was an allegation that police were ignoring the fact that the restaurant owner mm-hmm. had been driving for 14 years without a dri- driver's license. So we alerted the police to it. They never asked us a single question. Mm-hmm. And as I understand the search warrants, search warrants are supposed to be you know, sort of a last resort uh, if you can't get the information any other way, they could have asked. Well, that's given it to them. Well, that's fact, right. Here's, here's the document we obtained. It was sitting on my desk next to the computer. They, they didn't take it. Look, <laughs> the fact that and this is the first time I'm learning and we're learning through our reporting that, that the probable cause affidavit was submitted after this magistrate judge granted a search warrant. I think that raises important questions. I do want to note, you have said that you, the paper was investigating at one point the police chief, Gideon Cody, but never published that investigation. You weren't able to verify some of the claims. Do you have any reason to believe that that investigation factored into this raid? I, I just speculation. 
There, okay. there are oddities about his coming here. Uh, there also are longstanding animosities in this town among various different factions. When I talked to the restaurant owner after she accused us of stealing the documents, she said, oh, I wasn't out to try to get you on this. I was trying to get the vice mayor. The vice mayor's house was also raided. Her computer and her phone were also seized at the mm. same time. This is obviously very important to you, your community, your paper, but this is very important to America because this is about First Amendment and freedom of the press. Your lawyer, as I understand it from the New York Times, wrote a letter to the police chief and said that they are treating your paper like a drug cartel or a street gang, and you are filing a federal lawsuit. Is that right? And if so, on what grounds? We are planning to uh, violation of the first, fourth, and fifth amendments, among other things. Uh, but uh, that has not happened yet. We're hopeful that uh, now that the KBI has taken over, uh, that there may be some cooler heads that prevail, shall we say. Uh, and they apparently are going to examine not only what the evidence says, but whether it was proper to go after it the way they were going after it. Do doesn't, dozens of news organizations, including CNN, have um, condemned uh, what, what we're seeing here. The, press, the Freedom of the Press Foundation called this the latest example of American law enforcement officers treating the press in a manner previously associated with authoritarian regimes. Can you just, Eric, speak to the bigger picture here about as a journalist and someone who has dedicated his life? You've been there all night trying to get the paper out this morning, despite all of this. Yeah. Just what this indicates to you? Well, I, I've never never heard of this before in the United States. There was one case years and years ago involving a student newspaper. But where you hear of this is in the third world. I had a grad student. I, I was a faculty member at the University of Illinois for many years. And I had a grad student from Egypt who talked about things like this regularly happening in the, in the authoritarian regime in Egypt. Uh, and we, in fact, did a paper on how this damaged journalism. It prevented journalists from from actually getting information and being able to state it clearly and concisely so people could understand it. Uh, this will this will dry up sources. We've had people, uh, when since we've lost our computers, I can't get on Facebook because I've got a thing that's tied into my cell phone. Uh, I Somebody called up and said, hey, there's this really interesting thing you ought to read on Facebook. And I said, I can't look at it. Yeah. Can you send it to me? My God, no, I can't send it to you. Uh, they might come and seize my computer. Um, I, I don't know. The, the original leak in this was the original leak to the document was probably a, a gimmick in a divorce case. Uh, and that's part of the reason why we didn't run it. Yeah. But, uh, well, Eric, but yeah, we, we had investigated the chief and, uh, and we couldn't get anywhere with it. Although we are now hearing additional things about that. Okay. Uh, so we may start it up again. Unfortunately, all of our notes are in Gone. the possession of the chief right now. Yeah, even they, they, they seized a computer of a reporter who was working on that, but was gone the week that all this happened. She'd been sick that week. Well, so we don't even know why they took that computer. Eric, you're, you're welcome back as you learn more. We have invited and do uh, keep the invitation open for the police chief, the sheriff, anyone from that police department to join us on the program. Uh, and congratulations on getting the paper out this morning regardless. Yeah, it was a major ordeal, but we made it. I and bet. We, we were going to do it even if we had to handwrite it on pieces of paper and deliver it on the streets. So De dedication, dedication to the trade. And there's your headline, Seize But Not Silenced. Eric Meyer, thank you. Thank you.
Donald Trump and his, that was a very important discussion. Thank very you. important story. Donald Trump and his co-defendants have nine days to surrender in Georgia. What we are learning, what they could expect when they're arrested. Good morning, everyone. It's the top of the hour. We're glad you're with us on this Wednesday. Former President Trump vowing to hold a major news conference just days before his deadline to surrender in Georgia on felony charges for trying to overturn the 2020 election. And in Maui, genetic experts are gathering DNA to help identify victims from that catastrophic wildfire as the death toll continues to soar now at at least 106 people. What we're learning about the power pole that seems to have faulted seconds before the first fire on the island broke out. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. So new overnight, we now know where Donald Trump will likely surrender in Fulton County, Georgia. The local sheriff says the former president is expected to be arrested and booked at the county jail on 13 felony charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss in that state. There are just nine days left. For Trump to turn himself in, the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, has given Trump and his 18 co-defendants until noon next Friday to surrender. One of Trump's alleged co-conspirators, former White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is fighting to move this case from state court into federal court. Maybe he can get it dismissed then. Rudy Giuliani, another co-defendant, says he'll be surrendering in Georgia sometime next week. And we're learning Giuliani is apparently going broke at this point, facing hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal bills and sanctions related to his work for Trump after the 2020 election. And this is all coming as Trump has announced he's going to hold a, quote, major news conference on Monday to totally exonerate himself and somehow prove the election results in Georgia were rigged. To be clear, once again, Georgia confirmed Joe Biden won after ballots were counted three times. That included a recount by hand of every ballot in every county, an audit of voter signatures on absentee ballots found zero fraud. Trump's lawyers brought at least a half a dozen cases to court to challenge the results. They lost or withdrew them all. Just putting that out there. Joining us now, CNN senior political analyst and anchor John Avalon, CNN legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jennifer Rogers. Also, our political commentators, Scott Jennings, Bakari Sellers at the table. Morning, everyone. Thank you for being here. Jennifer, to you. Uh, I'm very interested in Mark Meadows and his move, first move to get this in federal court before Trump, independent of Trump, and the fact that he might prevail. Yeah, it's really interesting that he moved so quickly and did it without Trump. I mean, you know, you only have 30 days, so you have to move quickly, but Trump hasn't moved yet. To me, the separation shows that they are not on the same page, right, which we've known for a while. He's been under the radar. But, um, you know, listen, this has been assigned to a district judge now. The judge will have to decide whether to summarily remand back to the state court if there are no grounds or hold a hearing and proceed in federal court against Meadows. There are some grounds, aren't there? So the statute says that if you are a federal officer and that the conduct that you're accused of doing is related to your federal duties, that it can be removed to federal court. So the argument for Meadows is I was chief of staff. I was doing things that are chief of staff like, like arranging meetings and doing what the president told me to do within my job responsibilities. And therefore, I fall under this statute. The problem is, of course, that the prosecutors will argue that it was not 
part of his job responsibilities to overturn the 2020 election. There was a point at which it switched between legal challenges and illegal pressures and so on, and that that's where it turned and that he mm -hmm. can't make that claim. So we'll see what the judge says. You're laughing as if James Baker wasn't doing the exact same <laughs> yeah, I, you're, you're right. You know, in the long history of White House chiefs of staff, in nowhere is it in the job description that you try to help your boss overturn American democracy. Actually, one could argue that would violate basic oaths that you take in such a position. That's a good point. Um, I hadn't thought through that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, it's the legal and then I think the political and then the norm. And yeah. this is just kind of, to some degree, the story of the last seven or eight years. And I think, Scott, to that point, if you're a Republican campaign right now, because these things are all intertwined, um, we've seen how they've responded. I think we've talked at length about the numbers they're seeing and why they've responded that way in a Republican primary. When the former president talks about, once again, not just talking about a rigged election that was not rigged, uh, but now he's going to have a report. He's not just talking about it. He's going to throw it right back in and just light that fire all over again, even as the conservative Republican governor in Georgia takes apart the argument mm -hmm. again, piece by piece, which is very important. What are you doing as a campaign? Are you going to follow down this rabbit hole? Well, if you were preparing for this debate, I mean, you were already preparing for the question, yep. you know, if you had been Mike Pence on January 6th, would you have done what he did? So that, I mean, if that doesn't get asked, that'll be malpractice. But now I assume the next, the next question will be, uh, did you watch Donald Trump's news conference and do you agree with him that the election in Georgia was stolen? And you're going to have to come up with an answer for that that sort of satisfies the vector that you've come up with for your campaign. So his in interjecting this prior to the debate uh, will... Uh, ensure that he's in the debate <clears throat> without actually being there, probably, and force all these campaigns to once again uh, dance around. And as you pointed out, you're going to have the Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, uh, saying this just is fabricated. Uh, so it, it's <laughs> as it has been for these campaigns it's extremely complicated and there's no great answers. It's not complicated. <laughs> it's not complicated. <laughs> it's, there, there are facts. Tell the truth. It doesn't need to be complicated. It's just put through the vector of their campaign strategy where it becomes complicated. I Tell like, the truth. Show I, I kind of like uh, having this battle of what Republicans are going to do because I can just sit over here and watch the chaos. The, the, <laughs> the fact is, I think, it, I think it is a little bit more complicated on the debate stage because they're going to, let, let's say Tim Scott gives the answer and says it's unpatriotic and un-American what Fonnie Willis is doing, right? Mm. Then he's going to get filleted by Chris Christie. Chris Christie is going to wait for him to say that yeah. and yeah. then literally fillet him on stage. Like right? Marco Rubio. Yeah, like Marco Rubio. Oh, and he's going to, if I were Chris Christie, I would look at Tim Scott when he says that and says, no, your answer is un-American. And what you're showing is you don't even have the fortitude to be a leader. And if you can't stand up to mm -hmm. Donald Trump, how can you stand up to Kim Jong-un? How can you stand up to the dictators of China? Yep. The same will be true on the Pence issue. If they ask the rest of these people up there, would you have done what Pence did? And there, there'll be interplay on that. So... And, and, on both and, fronts. And I think Ron DeSantis, I mean, this is the trap that they're going to set for Ron DeSantis and others. So when Ron DeSantis tries to, and Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, they try to be adiaphorous. You like that? That's a SAT <laughs> word. When they, try to, when they try to, like, fence it, right, when they, when they don't really want to make a decision or they thread a needle, <clears> then that's when Chris Christie and others and Asa Hutchinson, who's a skilled prosecutor, mm -hmm. yeah. are going to be <laughs> able to fillet them on the stage. And so, I, I mean, I, I hear you. In, like, the larger scheme of things, this ain't complicated. 
Like the election wasn't stolen. It's not rigged. Right. And be, you should you should be able to say that out loud. But yeah. on the debate stage, when they try yeah. to thread that needle, it's going to get really complicated. <clears throat> um, not to take Scott's side, but I'm tired of you all <clears throat> felt, felt jumping like, up on my guy. Yeah, <laughs> I hired an attorney. <laughs> I got a lawyer to fight <laughs> <you>. off Phil. <laughs> he's you. pretty good. He's I'm got decent. a decent one loss record. He's got a future. That's yeah, that's funny funny. <laughs> in American politics. I'm going to another great lawyer at the table. Jennifer, on this RICO claim that Rudy Giuliani, who like really pioneered it and used it so successfully in New York against mob bosses, who says this is totally the wrong way to use it and Fannie Willis doesn't know what she's doing. What do you yeah, say? I'm, I'm waiting for the details on that. I mean, it's the wrong way to use it. All right. Tell me why. I mean, <laughs> the Georgia RICO law is exceedingly broad. It's broader than the federal yeah. RICO law that Rudy is so familiar with. So when you look at the indictment and you put it up against the law in Georgia, it seems pretty on all fours to me. I'm, I'm anxious to see how he's actually going to fight this on the legal side. I mean, obviously, he can make his claims about the facts and what he was doing and what he wasn't doing. But to say it's not a fit, the allegations with the law makes no sense to me. Uh, John, I feel like Irony lost all meaning over the course of the last seven or eight yeah. years. But the idea of the man who revolutionized the modern use of RICO to literally take apart the most powerful mafia crime families in New York and launched his political career that yep. made him America's mayor and somehow ended up in this place. Uh, irony is not lost. That <laughs> no. RICO is being used against him now. We, we've, we've just gone full circle. But, but you're right. It is a historic irony, of course. And one of the criticisms of Rudy in, in innovating that use of RICO against the mafia too was broad, that it was too broad an interpretation. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, there there's, is this tragic twist in, in the Rudy tale, the, 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 the tragic opera of his life. But there's got to be accountability for the things you do. And it's very clear from this indictment, this was a multifaceted effort to try to overturn an American election. And there's just nothing more serious than that. And I, just also the undertones of, of Rudy, and I, I believe he was on with Eric Bowling, who was yeah, yeah Eric mm-hmm. Bowling, mm-hmm. and even Donald Trump in their attacks against Fonnie Willis. I mean, you, you have to address those as well. I mean, they're going out of their way and calling this woman incompetent. They're saying that she's not a good lawyer. They're talking about crime. I, I read a tweet from Jim Jordan, and he was talking about you should focus on crime in your own county. Well, one thing that Fonnie Willis is doing. doing is cleaning up the streets of Atlanta. I mean, I mean, she and she and the mayor of Atlanta have. Right. They have literally dropped the crime rate and they've taken on gangs a lot like Rudy Giuliani used to do. They've taken on very well-known gangs in, in, in Atlanta. And so those normal arguments that they're trying to launch, they're, they're more red herrings than anything. And they have an undertone of the way that, that a lot of individuals deal with women in politics and a lot of individuals on another level deal with women in the law, which you can speak to more, and particularly black women. I, I do want to give you a moment to respond to that as a female attorney, how she's been attacked, the way in which Fonnie Willis has been attacked? Well, I mean, obviously it's unfair and it's incorrect, but I will say this, that argument doesn't make it within the four corners of the courtroom, right? When you get into the courtroom, they will not be allowed to say anything about the prosecutor, what she should be doing instead of this case. All she gets to say is what's happening in this case, and that's what will matter to the jury. All right, guys. Uh, Scott Jennings, Scott Jennings' attorney, Picard Sellers, (laughs) Jennifer Rogers, John Avalon. Thanks. Appreciate it. So will Arizona be the next state to indict former President Donald Trump? The Georgia indictment mentions Arizona several times, and the state has been investigating Trump, his allies, and Arizona's fake electors. We're going to ask the Arizona Secretary of State where things stand. Coming up next. And we're getting one of our first looks on the ground at the worst of the devastation left behind by the Hawaii wildfires. Our next guest not only covered it for the Hawaii News Station, but recently found out that he lost four of his family members in the fires. We'll have that coming up. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
Urgent new questions this morning about what caused the fires in Maui that are now being blamed for 106 deaths this morning. And that's the death count we should know with only about a quarter of the search done. So it is likely to go higher, potentially much higher. We don't know what started the first fire, but there is video that seems to show a power pole faulting seconds before we see flames. We should note this is not the blaze that destroyed Lahaina. This is from a different part of Maui. I'll check out this video from last Monday. A few seconds in, you're going to see a big flash. Then the camera pans several different times. By the time it refocuses, you'll see flames. Well, this, we're going to let this play out to the end to see the fire. But at the same time of the first flash, our next guest says several sensors went off in the town where that fire started. And experts say that flash is likely an arc flash, something that happens when a power line gets knocked down, releasing power. Hawaiian Electric said in a statement, quote, we know there is speculation about what started the fire and we, along with others, are working hard to figure out what happened. Bob Marshall is the co-founder and chief executive of Whisker Labs, a private company that uses advanced, an advanced sensor network to monitor electrical grids across the country. He joins us now. Bob, in terms of the, the sensors themselves, what we're see- can you explain to us what they showed here? Yeah, we've got an advanced sensor network all over the island of Maui and across the United States, and and they measure the quality and the reliability of the power grid. So, you know, in the United States, you know, voltage in our homes should be 120 volts. And precisely at the same time as the video shows that arc flash, we measure on 10 different sensors a sharp drop in voltage, which is indicative of an arc flash. Uh, you know, so it's verification that indeed this was very likely caused by a fault on the utility grid. So we were also told, uh, the public's been told by the CEO of Hawaii Electric, the state utility, that the electricity was needed to, to, for, the pa- for the water pumps to work, right? And you need that to fight the fire. But there's been criticism that the power wasn't cut sooner. Would the power being cut sooner if a pole, would a pole have faulted like this if the power were cut? No, I, you know, at, at, at the end of the day, if there is no energy in the power lines, then there will be no arc flash. Uh, so, you know, you require the power has to be on for that to happen. Do you, uh, can you explain or, or at least walk through the number of faults, kind of how this all actually played out? Yeah, so the network across Maui, you know, is, you know, has an incredible amount of data. And, you know, unfortunately, it shows an increasingly stressed utility grid starting Monday night into Tuesday morning. And through the overnight hours, when all the fires ignited, uh, we measured 122 individual faults on the utility grid, any one of which could be, you know, produce a similar uh, result to what you see on that video. Bob Marshall, thank you for for joining us with your expertise. Please keep us posted as you guys learn more. Appreciate the opportunity. Of course. Now, we're also getting a first look on the ground in the worst hit area of wildfire ravage, Lahaina. You can see, just look at these pictures, the charred cars, the burned out homes, the scope. You can barely even get your head around it. FEMA is on the ground looking for those who are still missing. Here's how the Hawaiian governor describes the process. We're beginning to heal, but we're also having our hearts broken day by day as we see the loss of life. Our next guest spent days reporting on the wildfires for the Hawaii, for Hawaii News Now. The whole time, he was worried about his own family living on the island. And on Friday, he got the tragic news that four of his family members did not make it. Hawaii News Now traffic anchor 
Jonathan Masaki Sharoma joins us now. Jonathan, can't even put into words how sorry we are for your loss along those lines. uh, Tell us about the four members of your family and and also how did you find out uh, in the midst of this tragedy? Well, mahalo, first of all, for letting me spend some time with both of you. It's my honor to be here. Uh, How I found out, uh, sadly, about uh, my cousin's in-laws was by just talking with him on the phone on Friday morning. I already had left the station overnight and was heading to California. But but before I left, I wanted to at least check in to see what was the latest. And unfortunately, when we talked and pretty much in graphic detail, what what was discovered and how they discovered, you know, his in-laws, which was mm-hmm. heartbreaking to say the least. And to remain composed, I won't really get into the details of, of what and how it all came about. But nonetheless, when we talked, sadly, the con- confirmation that his, you know, mother-in-law and father-in-law and his sister-in-law and her son were, were lost due to the fires. I have another cousin that remains missing right now. And I believe I heard you say earlier about, you know, the, the painstaking task of identifying is now what's going to be the focus. And, you know, one another cousin did provide a DNA sample just so that when this sadly probably will be the inevitable conclusion of what's going on to, to identify this other cousin that, that lost that we still have not heard from. We are praying that you get good news about your missing cousin, of course. What I have been so struck by, beyond the resilience, by the way, of all of you on Maui, is that so many have continued the important work they do while trying to find and wait for word of loved ones. We had a firefighter on on Monday who had lost her uncle Mm -hmm. and was fighting the flames at the same time. For you, you've been continuing your work reporting through all of this, how? How do you do it? Um, you know, and this is why I have to try to really watch what I say because I get so emotional when when I think about it. But you know, I, as you can recall, the first day before the fires got to, before we realized how bad it was, you know, I was on air and you know taking different advisories from Maui County officials about road closures and you know how uh, the roads were shut down. And in the meantime, realizing as I looked at my traffic maps and you know talking with my producers. You know, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is the, the area. First of all, upcountry Maui was hit also, not as bad as West Maui. But first of all, seeing my childhood home city of Kula getting hit that way. Then second, you know, getting to the worst part is reporting on, okay, guys, you're not allowed to get into West Maui because of this. And then seeing where the gist of where this was taking place at, realizing, oh, my gosh, that's where my grandmother's family you know, kind of had their roots in. And I remember as a child playing at the very house that sadly was lost. So, you know, you, you, as you both know, when you're giving news and something personal happens, you still have to maintain that, that, um, that uh, composure and, and still report. But, you know, the minute the camera goes off and the mics are off, you know, you're in the corner and just regrouping and, and, and just getting the facts and information that, that you need to let the public know, because obviously we're thinking about their safety as well. Jonathan, to that point, uh, you were talking about the advisories and what you were learning in real time while at work. As a reporter, as somebody who does this for a living, what questions are unanswered? You know, we've heard a lot about the lack of warning, about how people's cell phones weren't working, so they couldn't get some messages. Uh, Where do you think answers are needed in terms of how this actually happened and the devastation didn't seem, it seemed to creep up so fast on the entire community? Mm -hmm. 
Gosh, that's a hard question to answer, Phil. You know, the bottom line up front is this. The people of Hawaii have always been rooted in the spirit of Ohana, which is family. And I know how painstaking this is. I know the hurt. I know the just the deep void we all feel because losing Lahaina, losing our family members is something so personal. And and I, I strongly believe because of you know our upbringing in the sense of family and the sense of aloha. Aloha is a word that I know is used, overused, but for someone from the islands, you are deep rooted in aloha. And aloha for us is to just have that that patience. And the second word I want to bring up is malama. Malama in, in Olelo Hawaii, the language of Hawaii is to take care. And I, I strongly believe as we try to, you know, make our way through all of this, those two words that are rooted in the Hawaiian culture are going to help the people get through this. It's it's not going to be easy. I, I totally realize that. Uh, but again, I do see family members, the one that just lost their in-laws. I he, We talked yesterday and, and the extension of people bringing food to the house, which is so common in Hawaii. When something happens, you bring food, you bring water, you you sit down and you just try to be there and malama each other to take care. So I, I don't know how to answer that question. I, I know there's, there's, there's people pointing blame and whatnot, but I just say the patience that we all need to have uh, to wait for those answers. And it's not easy to wait, but I strongly believe patience, aloha, and malama will be the way to get through this. That's really beautiful. Jonathan, thank you very much for sharing that with us. Our hearts are with you. Mahalo. Have a good day. Aloha. Well, could Trump's latest indictment in Georgia affect his support in the Peach State? We're going to break down some of those numbers. That's coming up next. A lot of news today. Here are five things to know this Wednesday, August 16th. With just nine days left to surrender, we know former President Trump is expected to be booked at the Fulton County Jail. In a new court filing, his co-defendant and former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, is trying to get his case moved from state to federal court. And this morning, at least 106 people killed in those wildfires in Hawaii, and that number is likely to rise, maybe even double. That's according to Hawaii's governor. President Biden says he'll travel to Maui soon once his visit will not disrupt the ongoing recovery efforts. And Alec Baldwin, the actor, could once again face manslaughter charges. A forensic report released Tuesday found the revolver that fired the round that killed cinematographer Alna Hutchins on the Rust movie set could only have happened if the trigger was pulled. Involuntary manslaughter charges were dismissed against the actor in April, and Baldwin has denied pulling the trigger. North Korea finally confirming that American Army Private Travis King is there in the country after he ran across the DMZ last month. They say he was seeking refuge after being mistreated and after racial discrimination against him by the army. King's mother is asking Kim Jong-un's regime to treat her son humanely. And just in, the Women's World Cup final is set. England taking down the tournament host nation Australia this morning, 3-1. to one. The soccer world will crown a first-time champion when the Lionesses take on Spain Sunday morning, 6 a.m. Eastern time. Five things to know this morning. More on these all day at CNN and CNN.com. Don't forget to download the Five Things podcast every morning. Go to CNN.com slash Five Things. You can also find it wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as Team Trump reels from yet another indictment, this one out of Georgia, the question now is, will we see another state make a similar move? Maybe Arizona, a state where Biden's margin of victory was even tighter than it was in Georgia. Part of the 98-page indictment reads, quote, The enterprise operated in Fulton County, Georgia, elsewhere in the state of Georgia and in other states, including but not limited to Arizona, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and the District of Columbia. 
Following his loss, Trump's legal team pressured state lawmakers not to certify the state's results and to audit the election, which sowed doubt in the voting process. Joining us now is Adrian Fontes. He's the Secretary of State in Arizona, would be in charge in the 2024 election. He's also the former Democratic Maricopa County recorder. Uh, thank you very much for your time, sir. I want to start with what people should think the Georgia indictment, what we saw out of the district attorney, uh, means for, if anything, what's happening in Arizona as it relates to looking back at the 2020 election efforts. Well, first, thanks for having me. And second, uh, our very capable attorney general, Chris Mays, uh, news has reported already uh, that they've got an ongoing investigation. Grand Canyon. So, well, they're in the Grand Canyon state. Uh, I'm out of state right now. But uh, we are making absolutely certain to cross all of the T's and dot all of the I's. That office is going to be very thorough. Uh, you may recall that as a candidate uh, a year and a half ago, I called for investigation uh, into some of the folks uh, who were trying to overturn our election in Arizona. I continue stalwart against folks uh, breaking the law when it comes to elections, uh, election administration. Uh, and we're going to stay on the path of making sure that the law is followed. That includes, uh, I'll make sure to note for folks, because I'm a former prosecutor myself, that all criminal defendants are presumed innocent by the law uh, until they're proven guilty. Uh, and so hopefully justice will prevail. Uh, in this. And uh, we're looking very carefully at making sure uh, that we are crossing T's and dot and I's in Arizona. Now, that, that final point is, is a critical one and leads into another question that I want to ask Governor Katie Hobbs. She used to hold your job in 2020. She said yesterday uh, that Arizona should press charges against the former president. Later, her communications director uh, seemed to walk that back since she misheard the question. The legal process should move ahead without a political interference. Uh, have you discussed this issue with Governor Hobbs, I, I know you guys were on the same ticket to some degree or running uh, in 2020 together. But since the investigation has launched, have you guys talked about this? Do you have any thoughts on her comments related to this? No, I think the uh, governor's office on the ninth floor will speak for uh, and with the governor. Uh, from our perspective, we want to make sure uh, that the rules are followed. Uh, as a matter of fact, in, in Arizona, the secretary of state does not run elections. The secretary of state is the regulator of those who do run the elections, our 15 counties. So uh, we establish uh, the playbook, much like the commissioner of a major league, uh, and we let the teams go ahead and do all of the work. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so um, we are excited about making sure uh, that we've got uh, solid teams uh, on the field in all of our 15 counties for the 2024 election, as far as the indictment is concerned, or future uh, uh, potential charges in Arizona. Uh, that's the attorney general's job at this stage of the game. And uh, we will support Chris Mays uh, and her efforts uh, and her team with any information, any background, any technical expertise uh, that the secretary's office may need to lend in the future. You, you talk about the playbook or kind of laying the groundwork for the teams to, uh, I'm going to mix metaphors here, so I'll just stop. But the idea of the, you know, you have a draft, uh, or I believe you have an elections procedures manual uh, that has made some changes, kind of moved in a different direction to some degree than, than Katie Hobbs, the now governor, uh, did during uh, her time in office. But it's also drawn the threat of a lawsuit from Republican state representative, from state lawmakers. What's your response to that? Well, look, I'm the first secretary of state in Arizona who actually administered elections prior to becoming secretary of state uh, in several decades. I know what the work is that the counties need to be doing and be prepared for. And this manual is actually for the counties. It's not for the legislature. It's not for the executive branch. It's for the counties. And with their input over the last five months, 
We work diligently to make sure that they've got a rule book that they can work with. Remember, Arizona has not only the second largest voting jurisdiction in the United States in Maricopa County, but we have some of the smallest voting jurisdictions in the country. And so we've got to have rules that apply to everyone in our unique system with very, very healthy, no excuse absentee voting by our ballot by mail system and in-person voting on election day. So that combination of factors requires some uh, high technical expertise. And, and, you know, we get threatened with lawsuits all of the time. Uh, it is part and parcel of the political world that we like to stay out of. Uh, but if a lawsuit gets filed, uh, I stand by the work uh, of our election director and her team, uh, and uh, we will vigorously defend the work of the Secretary of State's office to help our counties run the best elections uh, that Arizona's citizens deserve. If this manual had been in place in 2020, what would have been different about how uh, the election in Arizona played out? Not much. As a matter of fact, a lot of the changes we are making are, are technical changes, uh, you know, and the, the manual really does just clarify what is in statute already. And, and, and statute cannot encompass all of the very specific technical things uh, about elections. And so that's why the manual is promulgated. And under Arizona law, uh, the legislature has pulled itself out of this process. They have given me the statutory authority to draft the procedure. Manual, and then the approval goes to the governor and the attorney general. If the legislature wants an active role uh, in this, then uh, they can change the rules that they made. But at this stage of the game, uh, we are moving along very nicely. Uh, and the impact versus 2020 is really political as to outcomes. It's not technical as to the administration of the election. Uh, and that's the way we hope to keep it in Arizona. All right. Arizona Secretary of State Adrian Fontes, thanks for your time, sir. Thank you very much. Good day. Good to hear from him. Uh, former President Trump, still the Republican frontrunner by a mile, by the way, in the 2024 race. Will this fourth indictment have an impact on that support? Harry Enten has this morning's number. He's here. I also think he can lose Georgia uh, if he's not doing what I said, telling people what he's for, staying focused on the race, quit looking back at the 2020 election. I mean, for goodness sakes, that was two and a half, three years ago now. I think if he continues to do that, he's going to lose Georgia in November. That was Georgia Governor Brian Kemp on CNN last month to our Caitlin Collins warning former President Donald Trump not to relitigate the 2020 election or he risks losing the state again. The former president clearly not taking that advice. Instead, fresh off his indictment in Georgia, doubling down on false claims of fraud. So how might this play out with voters in Georgia? I have wonderful news. <laughs> I think, at least. Uh, Harry Inton has the morning number. He's going to tell us how it's going to play out. What's the morning number, Harry? All right, this morning's number is 17 points. Why? Because let's take a look at the presidential elections in Georgia. There's been a 17-point swing towards the Democrats since 2004. That is a much wider swing than we saw nationally, which was just seven points. So Georgia, which obviously Joe Biden won, becoming the first Democrat since Bill Clinton in 1992 to carry the state. It's a state that is going significantly further to the left. And we look, you know, in terms of Donald Trump and his sort of popularity amongst the GOP base in Georgia. Look at this. Trump endorsed candidates won this often in 2022 GOP primaries. Nationwide, look at that, 95%. But it's just 67% in Georgia for Congress and governor. So Republicans in Georgia more skeptical than Republican nationwide of Trump-backed candidates, at least in 2022. 
Just doing my math. 95 is higher than 65. That right? is correct. Okay. 95 what, bigger. I'm not going to take a job. 67. I'm just saying I probably could. Um, what? Uh, why? Why? Explain why. What's different about Georgia Republicans? Yeah. So you know, if you know, we're sort of thinking. Okay, we looked at 2020. We looked at 2022. Let's look at 2024 going forward, right? Because I think that's the key nugget here. Okay, Republicans who think Trump has committed serious federal crimes. Look at this. This is nationally. 27% of Republicans with a college degree believe so, versus just 12% amongst those without a college degree. And why is that so important for Georgia? Because let's take a look at the six closest swing states that Joe Biden won back in 2020. Look at this. This is Trump voters with a college degree in those states. Georgia ranks near the top at 35%, significantly more than, say, Wisconsin, more than Michigan, Nevada. Only Arizona tops it. So the Trump skeptical Republicans are those with a college degree, and they're plentiful in Georgia among Republicans. Don't be surprised if there's perhaps some ebbing of that Trump Republican base in the peach state. The cab, Cobb, it's a great point. You know it. A man. Thank you, Harry. Thank you. All right. Here's what Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis said on Monday night. Listen. All elections in our nation are administered by the states. The state's role in this process is essential to the functioning of our democracy. According to a New York Times essay, the Georgia case that she unveiled against former President Trump and his alleged co-conspirators shows the power of states to save democracy. Amy Lee Copeland and Norm Eisen write that the indictment stands out above all, quote, because Georgia offers uniquely compelling evidence of election interference and a set of state criminal statutes tailor-made for the sprawling, loosely organized wrongdoing. They add, it is a reminder of the genius of American federalism. When our democracy is threatened, states have an indispensable part to play in protecting it. Joining us now, one of the authors of that fascinating op-ed, former Georgia federal prosecutor, Amy Lee Copeland. Amy Lee, it's great to have you. What do you think is so ingenious about the way Fonnie Willis did this? Good morning, Poppy. The Georgia indictment collects everything that happened in Georgia with respect to this presidential election. It covers the calls made to the Secretary of State, which are widely publicized, but things that other people may not be as aware of. It talks about the participants going to the General Assembly to try to have the fake electors. It talks about uh, attempts to have voting machine breaches in rural Coffee County, Georgia. It speaks about witness intimidation of poll workers in Fulton County. And it ties it all back to the Oval Office, and it parallels what is going on in other states. Georgia's RICO statute is broad and is to be liberally construed, and it's a perfect mechanism for punishing and recognizing all of these crimes. So is the fact that Georgia's RICO statute is so broad, broader actually than, than the federal one, why you think Trump's uh, claims and his attorney's likely attempts to say this doesn't fall under RICO will be unsuccessful? I do think they'll be unsuccessful, ultimately. I'm sure there'll be a number of challenges. I have no doubt that these defendants will be represented by very capable attorneys. But the statute is very clear and it is very broad. Mm -hmm. We know, actually, that Trump's two defense lawyers in the state of Georgia are really capable attorneys. They've been really successful. Um, even people who've uh, tried cases against him in the court have complimented them. So you're a former Georgia federal prosecutor. What do you think Fonnie Willis's team's biggest Achilles heel is as they take this to trial? Well, it's just going to be a matter of time. I think they're going to, Ms. Willis came out and said that she wanted to try this within six months and she would be ready. I have no doubt that she can try this case in six months. 
She has been investigating this case since February the 10th of 2022. But I think delay is going to be a real issue in this case. I think there's going to be some motions. There's been a removal petition filed by Mr. Meadows. I think the defense will need more than six months to prepare. And I think striking a jury is going to be very, very difficult in this case. Yeah. Jury selection will be fascinating through this. Um, Mark Meadows wants this in federal court. Will, but we'll, Go ahead, Amy Lee. He does. He filed a removal petition. I'm sorry. Yes, Mark Meadows does want this in federal court. He filed a removal petition saying that he had colorable federal defenses and the federal court should hear his case. I expect removal petitions from other you know, governmental actors like Mr. Clark and, and uh, Mr. Trump himself. Well, Trump's former attorney in the second impeachment, David Schoen, thinks um, not only Mark Meadows, but Trump has a very um, good case to make to get this thing in federal court. And he explained why yesterday on the show. Here's what he said. The defense story would be President Trump and all of those around him believed at all times that there was election fraud, there were irregularities, that what he was saying he believed in. And if that's the case, then he had an obligation, would be the defense, to see that the law, take care that the laws are faithfully executed, so clearly acting as president. That's how he reads this under the removal statute 40, 1442, that he was doing this in his capacity as president. Mark Meadows is saying in this motion, I was doing this in my capacity as chief of staff. What do you say? States administer elections, and here the state has consistently said that there was no election fraud. Uh, they said it at the outset, and Governor Trump said it as recently as Monday, I believe, that there was no election fraud in the 2020 election. And you're saying, therefore, they weren't acting legit. They may have been acting in those capacities as president and chief of staff, but they weren't acting legitimately because they should have known? That is one thing I'm saying, and I'm also hearkening back to the January 6th testimony of Attorney General Barr, for instance, where, you know, he says that Mr. Trump actually did know that there was no election fraud, that those statements had been made to him. Final question to you is about how long this took. So Jack Smith's, uh, much of what we see in Fonnie Willis's indictment is in uh, Jack Smith's most recent indictment. His took about eight months from when he took over, and his case covers seven different states, obviously federal machinations and all of this. Do you think Bonnie Willis waited too long to bring this case two and a half years? I think Ms. Willis waited until she felt certain she had everything she needed. Uh, she began this investigation, like I said, on February 10th, 2021, taking it over from the Georgia Secretary of State. She impaneled a special purpose grand jury to have 75 witnesses come and testify, and that grand jury to make a recommendation. She then took it to a regular grand jury. Mr. Trump has received more protection than the average criminal defendant by having this presented to a special purpose grand jury. Her investigation took as long as it took, and she's ready to go now. Amy Lee Copeland, thanks so much for being with us. I encourage everyone to, to read your piece in The Times. It's really interesting. Thanks again. Thank you, Poppy. Goodbye. Well, a diehard Dodgers fan is making good on his, major, uh, his wager with slugger Mookie Betts, something he now calls, Betts now calls, one of the coolest moments of his career. Poppy, I don't even think I you're going to believe say, but what I'm, was on the line I'm here. We're going to tell you. Dodgers Next. fan. That's me, the number what? one Dodgers fan. In his first 10 seasons in the major leagues, Mookie Betts has hit 244 home runs, but he's calling one home run from a couple of weeks ago one of the coolest moments of his career. Betts was in the on-deck circle in a game against the Oakland A's when Giuseppe Mancuso bet the Dodgers slugger that if he hit a home run, 
He was going to give his soon-to-be-born daughter the middle name of Mookie. Oh. And I heard this, and I, I laughed, and he said he was serious. And so I turned around and told him, no, nah, don't do that, bro. Don't, don't do that. And he said, no, nah, I'm going to do it. And I said, your wife wouldn't like that, bro. Don't do that. He said, no, nah, I'm going to tell her. I mean, he warned him. <laughs> of course, bets delivered, hitting a 436-foot bomb to left field, his longest home run with the team. Fast forward to yesterday. Well, bets learned that Giuseppe actually made good on that bet, posting a birth certificate online for Francesca Mookie Mancuso. And here she is. Giuseppe tag bets and the Dodgers in the post, writing, a bet is a bet. I can't wait to meet Francesca. And uh, that's going to be my girl. That's going to be my girl. So I thought that was pretty neat. Pretty neat. indeed. First of all, I love the name Mookie. Who doesn't want to call a cute baby Mookie? Would you have been super psyched if your husband was my like, name hey, is, by the way, I lost a bet to a Major is, League Baseball player, and no, now we have to name our child. My name is Poppy. Like, I grew up with the weird name in Minnesota in the 1980s, okay? So I, I like, and it's worked out okay. Okay. I'm okay. Like I'm okay. Cool I'm okay. Thank you for being with us. We will see you here tomorrow morning. Have a great day. CNN News Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.